So I literally proved to myself that I could retrain my own brain from a fear response that a lot of us struggle with that for a while was only getting worse and I did not know what to do, you know? And it was, uh, it was a powerful learning experience for me. I'm Dr. Dave Rabin, and this is the Lifestylist Podcast. Welcome to episode 370, The Psychology of Stress, Healing Trauma and Turning Off Triggers with Dr. David Rabin. You can find show notes for this episode at lukestory.com slash Rabin. That's R-A-B-I-N. It's my guess that by the end of this episode, you might want to check out something we talk about briefly during the conversation called the Apollo, an incredible piece of technology that you'll learn more about. I'll just drop this on you now. You can go to apolloneuro.com and enter the code LUKE15 to save 15% off. So stay tuned for more about that. Our guest, Dr. David Rabin, is an MD, PhD, neuroscientist, board-certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur, and inventor who's been studying the impact of chronic illness in humans for more than a decade. He's also the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, to which I just referred which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. It's incredible stuff. Dr. Rabin is also the medical director at the Apollo Clinic. In addition to his clinical psychiatry practice, Dr. Rabin is currently conducting research on the epigenetic regulation of trauma responses and recovery to elucidate the mechanism of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and the neurobiology of belief. He's onto some incredible stuff, guys. Today, our sponsors are juve.com slash Luke for all things red light, waterandwellness.com slash story, where you can get your AquaTrue water filter and many other incredible products. And then finally, superleaf.com slash Luke for some incredible Kratom products. Here's but a few of the topics covered in this deep rabbit hole of a conversation. The Apollo device and the impressive science behind it. The most unlikely causes of stress and anxiety and how to solve them. The difference between fear and anxiety. How people can deal with stress brought on by Convid and the possible lasting impacts on mental health. How the stress of Convid is impacting Dr. Rabin's patients healthcare professionals and the impact on their mental health, trauma and the limbic system connection, the surprising relationship between PTSD and trauma, the future of addiction recovery, how Dr. Rabin defines addiction, the most common root causes of addictions, mental illness, and how various forms of psychedelic therapies can help. So my friends, you are in for a real treat of a show today. Make sure to share it with a friend if you feel so called. I'll be back at you next Tuesday. Man, here we go again. It's great to see you. Back in the saddle. Great to see you in person, live in the flesh. Welcome to town. Thank you. You get the benefit today of having our co-host Cookie here (laughs) holding space for us, which is always nice. Uh, Don't be alarmed if she jumps on your lap at some point. She's known to do that when she gets (laughs) bored and friendly. So man, uh, so much has changed since you and I last chatted. I think after our podcast together, uh, which I'll put in the show notes, which by the way, people can find the show notes for this episode at lukestory.com, Rabin, R-A-B-I-N, lukestory.com slash Rabin. All the show notes, everything we talked about will be there. Uh, but then after our podcast, 
which will be numbered and linked in the show notes, uh, we were going to do some ketamine-assisted therapy. There were some things oh, that right. I wanted to work through. And uh, you were up in Northern California. I was in LA. And I did the intake and I was all ready to go. And then I went and did Bufo. And I thought, okay, that was enough to last for a while. <laughs> and then we postponed that and still haven't done it. Although I would like to at some point, but there was such a huge punctuation mark uh, in my consciousness after that experience that a lot got sorted out just from you know a one hour thing. Yeah. Anywho, uh, what's new and exciting in your life? What's what's going on right now, career wise, with with Apollo? What, what's happening with you? Uh, so many things. I don't know. It's hard to even keep track. But uh, yeah, I mean, on uh, things with Apollo are going really well. I think last year, you know, we of course had no idea that COVID was coming, like everybody else, and or like most other people, and we you know, went to CES, got very sick, possibly with COVID. And this is like CES January of 2020, where we launched Apollo. And then within a month of that, it started to come out that there was something going on. And, you know, like many young startups where, you know, we literally had been working for five years com- with the research combined with the business de- development to make start a company to get this product finally out. And we launched the product in January 31st oh of 2020. God. Ben Greenfield puts this podcast out we sell out within 14 days and then we can't get more product because all of the ship all of the you know we have we had one one part of our uh of of the apollo comes from overseas because unfortunately there are certain parts of technology that just aren't made in america anymore so things that almost all cars use for instance like certain resistors and transistors and little parts you just can't get them from in the states they're not made here anymore which is a huge problem now i think we're starting to realize that we need diversification of supply chain right yeah no shit um and everything just got stalled you know like many companies we we sat down Catherine and i and and you know and our team and thought and, and our core team were thinking you know what are we going to do like we have to figure out how to make sure we can get stuff in stock so we can keep selling units or we're going to have to like potentially furlough a big part of our team, which was extremely stressful last spring. And or I guess it was two, two springs ago now. Um, and then gradually, we just pushed and pushed and continued to, to do our best to try to keep things moving forward. And then supply chain gradually started to get back connected. And we got a few units here and a few units there. And then we just kept selling stuff. And we managed to not fire anyone, which is so great because when you just start going going and moving things along and then you have to let people go it's like oh you know these are friends and like it's like a family you know we have like a really i'm very proud to say we have a really lovely and tight company culture that is sticking around as we grow and company culture is so important to the way that you develop a product which i think is often overlooked because everybody's looking at the bottom line with money but um, you know, it's just so important because similar to doing your own self-work and seeing how that radiates out into your community and your family, having a company culture that is very positive and focused on, you know, healing, for instance, it has to reflect that inward because then that also gets reflected outward to the community. And then people actually have better interactions with your company because there's an, there's a certain vibe there that you know, we really care, which we do. And that actually comes across rather than seeming, you know, not genuine. And so, you know, thinking about the challenges that we face during pandemic times, growing a company, like we scale from something like eight or nine employees before COVID to 
35 employees now. What? And we don't, we've never met half these people in person, <laughs> right? We have not even met in person. It's like how, how it's so much more challenging to grow a young company when you don't have the ability to get together and, and build those in-person relationships so that people really know who you are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's just, it's just been a host of new challenges after new challenges that have really helped us grow a lot and, you know, learn about what our, what our strengths are of community building and that we're able to do it without being in person. But then we also look forward to getting together. And now that things are kind of opening up more, it's been nice to finally bring the team back together. We were just in Pittsburgh for a little bit um, and, and had a bunch of nice team gatherings. And, you know, the family vibe is still there. And it's really nice to see that that is still all intact, despite all of the tumultuousness that's been going on. But overall, yeah. things have been moving. We have like f- over 40,000 units out in the wild. Wow. In just a little over a year, people are continuing to give us positive feedback about the experience. And the feedback is, you know, all the feedback we get is so helpful because the more we get, the more we can make a b- continue to make a better product and make sure we're meeting the needs of our of our consumers and clients who want to feel better and want to be a little more in control of their their lives and their health. So wow. it's been really rewarding. Wow. Congratulations on on thriving through that. I know many many startups have not, you know. It's it was I, probably it, many more than we realized because of course what company wants to publicly announce their demise. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like everyone's gonna hang on to that last thread until they just can't, you know? Right. And you know, as as many people have said, especially recently, the struggle was real. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. a real challenge for all of us. And it was, you know, again, I think I, I like to think that I kind of have a unique perspective because I went through, you know, pre-med and medical training and residency training and like all of the things that we do as doctors to train in what we do, which is extremely stressful, right? And it is like it pushes you to your limit of your ability, you know, abilities in general working 60 to 80 hours a week and still have to keep a smile on your face and be really like empathetic and, and, you know, kind to people and courteous and you can't let your lack of sleep get to you um, in almost any way. And I would say that that three month period was about as challenging as the most challenging times that I had in my medical training. Wow. It was rough. And because yeah. it's so much uncertainty, at least with medical school, you know, and, and residency training, you know, that if, if you, keep up the middle of the road, right? If you do, if you, if, you, if you check off all the boxes and you do what you're told, you will finish, right? You will get to the end at some point. Whereas with startups, it's, it's a little bit different. You don't have that security of knowing that you're going to get to the end. There, you, may, you may get to the end in a week and you may get to the end in years and you don't know what's going to happen. The uncertainty itself is like, it racks your brain, you know? Yeah. And that creates a lot of stress that then we have to figure out new ways to navigate, basically. Yeah. But Which, Apollo's been a lifesaver through that process, I can tell oh, you. I don't yeah. think we could have done it without it. Oh, for sure. <laughs> uh, and then what about um, in your personal career, your practice? So you're a neuroscientist, you're a psychiatrist. Um, throughout all of this, have you been still taking patients and managing that side of your your life as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... A lot of people ask me, how is it possible that I still see patients and why? Um, And I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, working with people in that capacity as a psychiatrist, as a therapist, and I'm I'm a bit of an unusual psychiatrist because I, I, you know, do the the great majority of my patients are psychotherapy patients and I'm trained in, you know, 10 different kinds of psychotherapy. And so I 
also prescribe drugs, Western drugs when needed, and I'll prescribe ketamine when indicated. And But I also mostly base all of that on a foundation of psychotherapy and talk therapy where we really get to the focus on getting to the root of what is making somebody not feel good or, or what might be at the root of someone's suffering. And that requires a really strong foundation of trust between me and my clients that they feel comfortable being truly vulnerable, right? And being able to express to me their potentially deepest, darkest secrets that they wouldn't tell anyone else, knowing that I'm not going to judge them and that I'm going to accept them for who they are regardless of what they say, right? And you can imagine that when you start to interact with people in that way, that, and you start to, you know, get good at building that kind of trust with other human beings, that it's not only rewarding, but it's also an incredible educational opportunity. I can tell you that, and most therapists I know who do a lot of uh, psychotherapy um, will tell you the same thing, which is that we learn more from our clients than from almost anyone else in any interaction because people have so much in common. You know, every time I see a client, I see something, I learn something about myself. Right. I learned something about how I could be doing something better in my own life, how they're struggling with a problem that I've been struggling with for years in a slightly different context, but still the same kind of issues. Um, and it's just an incredible learning opportunity. And so I've had, I, you know, I, I've felt that it is extremely important to keep up because that is a learning opportunity that is a privilege, you know, to be able to have these kinds of interactions with people where that, that are, it's really, they're really rare. And it's really a privilege to be able to do that with others and to help people restore that trust in themselves and to see the impact of that on their communities. And working with veterans in this way was actually what led us, led me to develop the idea behind Apollo in the first place. And I couldn't, I wouldn't have come up with it without seeing what my patients were going through and figuring out how to help them better. You know, what can I give you to take out of the office? In the office, I can help you feel safe. Out of the office, I can't do anything anymore, right? My powers are, are, are limited. So if I can give you something, and that was the origin story of Apollo, is that you know, if I could give you something and you have PTSD and you'd never feel safe in your day-to-day -day life, then can I give you something that you can take away after you leave hanging out with me uh, where you can continue to have that feeling of safety in your day-to-day? And so the practice has been growing, which is cool. And we started a, uh, you know, through the nonprofit that I uh, co-founded, the Board of Medicine, which is a group of uh, world-renowned experts that support the basically developing clinical guidelines for complementary and alternative medicine, which haven't really existed in Western medicine around harm reduction and safety. So being able to say, you know, how to help explain to doctors how to use cannabis products safely, right? Not that we know exactly what effect all of them are going to have, but we do have enough evidence for safe use for, say, avoiding opiate addiction, if possible, for alternative pain management or wearable technologies that can augment management of depression and anxiety disorders and PTSD. And so we started through that a one of the first clinical training programs for ketamine-assisted psychotherapy where we do... We've been training physicians and therapists in training and who are already certified to learn how to do remote, literally teleketamine-assisted psychotherapy, like what you and I were talking about a year ago, where it was just me. Now wow. we have wow. others doing it too. And um, gradually now, those we have a big wait list of people wanting to be trained, and those people are going to continue to train others, which is really great. Wow. So That's incredible. It's been an exciting time, and I only yeah. hope that other people start doing it, doing this, these kinds yeah. of trainings too, because we desperately need more people who know how to do this work. 
You're listening to a guy who has always loved the sun any time of day, but especially at dawn and at dusk. And I always wondered why, you know, why do we like to watch sunsets? Why are our bodies just sort of internally and automatically yoked to taking in that red slash orange amber light in the morning? Well, it turns out after looking into some of the science that that frequency of light has some profound effects on your health including hormones, neurotransmitters, circadian rhythm regulation, uh, recovery from stress, exercise, et cetera, and also mitochondrial function. So what's really cool about our sponsor Juve, that's J-O-O-V-V, is that they've taken the frequencies of red light present in natural sunlight, concentrated and amplified them and put them into devices that you can integrate into your home and lifestyle. So I've been using the red light therapy for years. I'm a huge fan of it. And in fact, I don't know what I'd do without it because you only get so much red light in the morning and it's difficult to get it on your entire body. So I've just uh, just kind of habituated myself to doing red light therapy just about every day. I always like to be very factual when I do these plugs. I won't say I do it every single day because that would not technically be true, but I'd say on average, probably four or five days a week, straight up. It's that awesome. So if you're ready to check out some red light therapy for yourself, our friends over at juve.com just released their generation 3.0 devices that have some amazing new features like ambient mode, some new mounting options that make them more flexible in terms of what you can do with them in your space, as well as a new recovery plus mode that uses a pulse infrared light to give your cells an extra healing boost. So they're always innovating, always upgrading, loving my friends over at Juve. If you're ready to take the plunge, here's what you do. Go to juve.com slash Luke. Again, that's J-O-O-V-V.com slash Luke. Use the code Luke over there and you're going to get, my friend, an exclusive discount on Juve's Generation 3.0 devices. Juve.com slash Luke. Oh man, I mean, in my subjective experience and with some close friends, I mean, the leaps and bounds that have been made through you know, therapist-assisted psychoactive experiences, I guess, primarily have been, um, due to the legality of it, have been ketamine. I mean, right. and I have not, you know, because we didn't do our session that way, I've not done it that way, but I have self-administered, and it's one of the only, it's one of the only things that I think I would use without a guide Although I did have one kind of heroin experience with it that I've talked about uh, where I did not have a guide and there was no one around that was aware that I had done it. And I took a little more than I thought I was going to um, and went a little deeper than I planned. And it was a bit, it was a bit sketch. But um, other than that, you know, it was a great learning experience. But yeah, um, with ketamine specifically, I can only imagine the power of it when you're in that disassociative place and you're able to then you know, have trust with another person as you described and have that level of intimacy, but have your guard so obliterated, right? Yeah. I mean, the first couple of times I did like a microdose of ketamine, I was with a um, partner I was dating at the time and it was like a freaking truth serum. You know what I mean? It's like stuff started falling out of my mouth. I'm like, did you just say that? That's the stuff you think that you don't say. Um, so I, you know, I can see the power in that. And I have a good friend in LA who, uh, was, uh, you know, an addict and alcoholic and such, and was sober a few years and was really stuck in some other areas of life, although he was still physically sober. And he went to field trip out in, I think in Santa Monica and signed up for a pretty extensive program. I believe it was around six sessions. It was a few thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. And 
just kind of asking my advice. Um, I've heard good things about them through Ben Greenfield. And, um, and I said, yeah, man, it's, it sounds good to me. I mean, if you're going to do something like that, you want to do it with a professional and not just sit home and, you know, watch a movie and think your problems are going to go right. away, you know, or whatever, listen to Pink Floyd, and, right. you know, um, or whatever. I think Floyd would be a good choice for that actually. <laughs> uh, but anyway, my friend David went and did it and, and I'm going to just give this disclaimer. I am not recommending that someone can be cured of their addictions because that's not been my experience. Well, actually I don't know, you know, I don't, try to do coke it's or still alcohol new territory yeah, yeah but my friend uh self self um you know described alcoholic and addict went did these ketamine sessions and had enormous breakthroughs uh regarding trauma and shame and learned how to develop self-love and out of that came all of these self-love practices affirmations in the mirror and all these writing i mean he just really got into yeah wow i've been hating myself for so long which he discovered in the ketamine therapy and then part of his integration was really well what's the opposite of that right and started doing this and this is the part that the disclaimer is for it's been uh, quite a few months and he drinks socially here and there and does not ever overdo it uh, he uses cannabis cannabis uh, recreationally and can put it down whenever he feels like it. If he has to work, he doesn't do it. I mean, he's like a normal person in that regard. Um, and he, um, you know, has indicated that it was clearly a result of that therapy. Now, That's I'm not going to try that myself. Like, I have no desire to smoke weed or drink alcohol or anything. I plan on never, ever doing that. But um, yeah, for him, it's like, I kind of check in with him. Are you still doing okay? He's like, I'm great. I go, you don't want to smoke weed like all day, every day. He's like, no, you know, maybe on a Friday night, I'm going to hang out and just relax and I'll do a little cannabis. It's not a big deal. I'm like, what? Mind blown. I've, I've literally never met anyone who was, had crossed the line of addiction and was able to go back and kind of reset like that. You know, as you well know, I'm sure um, for most of us, once there's a certain line crossed, there's no going back to being a regular person in that regard again. So, so I'm a huge fan. Uh, but anyway, we're going to talk more about that in moments. Uh, so we got the update on Apollo Business. Congratulations on pulling through, not just pulling through, but thriving and keeping your team intact. The company culture piece is super important. Um, as I've, you know, had employees over the years, um, that's been been the case that you indicated where the um, the culture is then sort of radiated out to your community of clients and customers, et cetera. So that's a huge insight. And then I'm glad that you're still practicing. And what I want to say about that was acknowledging what a gift it is to have the level of intimacy that you're able to have with people. It really is. It's pretty, pretty rare. It's very uh, rare. In, in most people's lives that they really have the ability to bond with someone so transparently in a safe um, environment like that so thank you for that contribution that's my pleasure and i yeah. will add that we all could benefit from that you know yeah. I've, even, I've had my own therapist in my life that's been incredibly helpful i learned a ton about how to listen em empathetically just from sitting in therapy with a therapist who at first i was like oh i don't need this but when you actually go in and do it you know and you sit there and you have somebody model for you what it's like to be an undivided non-judgmental listener then you realize that that while that seems on the surface like something you need to go to school for it's actually something that's truly intuitive and innate to being human right it's just that we're we're taught to we're, we're not really taught to and we don't often practice undivided listening very well 
and we don't practice reserving judgment. We practice, you know, waiting to speak when somebody else is talking and judging rapidly and uh, coming to conclusions and making assumptions a lot, which, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily serve us, but we are taught that by other people who model that for us and, or that, or by watching people on TV or whatever it might be. And, you know, I think that it's really interesting. One of the things I've learned from being a therapist that's so interesting is just how, how accessible the, and how powerful it is that, that the most important skill and service that we provide to our clients is just non-judgmental empathic listening of which there is a per, per, like a evolved part of our emotional brains that's dedicated just to that and it's always there in all of us and we just don't use it so what happens when you don't use it you forget it's there right so there's a really interesting yeah if you don't use it you lose, you lose it. it right yeah, yeah. And, and that's a real thing and and i think that there's you know thinking about that in this way it, it's really interesting because especially at a time like this where people are a little bit more on edge and we're coming back into being social again and getting used to that and we haven't been doing that in a while and we've been extra far apart from each other in a lot of places and just to think about the power that we all have when we that we share with someone else when we look someone in the eye like we're doing right now and and say hey I see you yeah. you know I acknowledge you it's good to see you right yeah. and yeah. just smile and express a you know, a love, loving emotion towards them, even if you don't know with that. the With the micro expressions of your mouth included. <laughs> right, right. That's been one of the, the biggest things I've noticed about this whole fiasco is the, the removal of that nonverbal communication. You know, I, I notice, I mean, I don't wear masks. I only what? have a few times and I really avoid it whenever possible, unless I'm under legal threat or something. But um <laughs> I noticed the few times I did have to do it, I would go up to a cash register and I'd like make myself smile with my eyes really big so I could just try to emote some sense of mm. positivity and connection with people, you know? And it's, I mean, it's difficult because a lot of people generally, just when you're out in public, have a really hard time with that sort of heart-centered presence because perhaps they're not used to it. It's right. not something they've accessed. But man, when you have a freaking diaper on your face, it's like, <laughs> it's real tough. It's extra but it, challenging. But it helped me actually... You know, I, I think a bit more, mm. habituate myself a bit more to really being present to that and being conscious of that, even when, you know, I'm not forced to wear a mask, which here in Texas, you very rarely are and haven't right. really been the time, whole time I've been here. But there's something to be said for that listening and presence. And I think for folks like us that are in the habit of doing that professionally and personally, uh, perhaps sometimes we take it for granted. And I think I notice that when I try to connect with someone and I just can't reach them. I'm like, hey, especially people that are like in their job. Mm -hmm. I notice it's, I, I always have fun trying to break them out of their role and just be like, hey, dude, we're just people, right? right? I love doing that with police. Yeah. You know, I get pulled over and like, hey, what's up, dude? You know, and they're used to the, you know, defense or offense. I'm in work mode right now. Yeah. You can't talk yeah. to me that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, what's going on, man? Oh, really? That happened? Oh, cool. Cool. Okay. So what are we going to do? You know, it's just sometimes you can break people out and it's so refreshing. And I think it's a gift to be able to, to be able to try and facilitate that for people. Um, when it comes to talk therapy, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like there's, as a, as a patient that I've had quite a few therapists over my life, you know, when I hit a rocky time, I'll definitely seek out help. How much of it is a person's need to just be expressive and emotive and just have someone who's holding that space 
versus them actually getting the feedback. You know, when I worked with you a couple of times over the phone, I think I just needed to talk about my problem or my perceived problem. Uh, and that was valuable, but there was a lot of value in you reflecting, hey, have you looked at it this way? What if you did this? What if you do that? It was, I think it was, um, it was around some things with Allison. Mm-hmm. Uh, no major conflict, but just kind of usual concerns. Stuff. Yeah, usual stuff, concerns I was having. And you said, well, hey, have you ever sat with her and just listened or experienced her work in a deeper way and ask her questions about the way she deals with whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And, and it was really great insight and it worked. I think I spoke mm-hmm. to you after that. I was like, I did the thing. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's kind of a three-parter. like, how much is it is us just going to confession, right? right. Just going, these are my deep, dark secrets I've never told anyone. Please hold that. And getting that, you know, shame or confusion out. How much is it getting wisdom and feedback? And then what about the application of yeah. the feedback that's given, the right? So it worked for me because I was like, okay, what did Dave say? Yeah, he said, do this. And then I think from all my years in addiction recovery, I'm pretty good at reading a book and it says, this is a principle, go use it. You know, because having the head knowledge is not really wisdom. It's more information that's been accrued rather than applied knowledge in the form of wisdom. So I guess it's kind of, how do you see those three playing out for a successful treatment? That's a really interesting question, and I'm really glad you asked that. I think that it's it's a little bit tricky to put like an exact percentage of effect on any given of course, part. Yeah. But I can I can kind of walk you through the way that I think about it, which is that, or the way, and and part of the way we're taught to think about it as therapists, which is that it ha- so all of that that you just mentioned has to be grounded to actually get the positive change that you're looking for, that you you or whoever it is that seeks to be helped or healed in any way is looking for, that there has to be a foundation of safety, right? If anybody feels judged in the experience and not heard, then you're not going to feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, then you're not going to be willing to make change in your life. Because when making change when things are already overwhelming is stressful and change itself becomes scary. And so safety is an absolute prerequisite for change to occur. So in that, if we think about it from that context, I think that the undivided listening and the non-judgmental listening that is, is probably like 51% of the experience because it's the foundation that everything else is built on. Um, that's the part that anyone can do for you. All of us can do for each other. That's the part we all already know how to do. And it just requires a little bit of practice, but it's really just zipping that shut when people are talking. And, and actually, if you don't give them any feedback afterwards about what it is that they said, even just saying, I hear you, right? I hear what you're saying. Not necessarily like, oh, I know exactly what you're feeling right now. That's not necessarily what people want to hear. And that can even demean what they're trying to tell you. But really saying, they, they don't necessarily expect you to even understand what they're going through. They expect you to just hear what they're going through and then let them know in whatever way you can, whether it's through nodding as they nod or making or matching their facial expressions in certain ways or making just making eye contact and smiling when they smile frowning when they frown and then letting them know that hey i heard what you said right i i hear that this is this has been like a really tough time for you or this has been really challenging for you lately that is enough to do that 51% because that is the 
undivided listening and reserving judgment for for some other time. And then then the reflection part, the other part you mentioned, which is the giving, the sharing of wisdom, is is you know, I would say the 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 icing on top, which is after we've already established the I hear you part, and you know, I, I you know that I'm listening, you know that I'm hearing you, you feel non not judged. Then I try to reflect back to you what you're saying to me in a way that you can start to explore your own self judgments, right? The way that you judge yourself for thinking and doing the things that you are talking about and what you think of that, even if they're subtle, not necessarily even I'm a bad person, but you know, maybe that thing I did, I have regrets about and I don't know why. And then we start to reflect on that and what that means to you and maybe where that, those feelings come from. And I would say that's probably, that's probably like maybe like 10, 15% of the experience. It is very helpful, but it's not, it's, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect every time, whereas the safety part has to be pretty on point for everything else to build on that. And, and then I'd say the rest of it is the action, right? The rest of it is, is what we call you know, motivating you by finding what motivates you or helping you find what motivates you to actually make the change in your life. And in a lot of cases, it's just role modeling, which goes back to the first part, right? So I un- listen to you and ask you questions about how you think and feel in an undivided way that was non-judgmental. And then my advice to you was do the same for Allison, right? And then you did it. And part of that was you hearing yourself talk about, so you get feedback that all the stuff going on in here, you hear as you're talking about it. And you're, you're not judging yourself as much because I'm not judging you. And so it's a reflection of that that helps to set the, the, the framework of trust. And then you hear me reflect it back. So you get another impression of it, right? And you get another opportunity to say, to think about, oh, what does this mean that I've been thinking about? And how can I think about it from you know, the perspective of somebody else riding on my life train, right? And then there's the last part, which is how do I take all of this stuff, what even just a little bit of the stuff, and then bring it into my life and make it happen? And that part, that actually applied action part, which in psychedelic therapy we call integration, that combined with the safety part of facilitating the ground the foundation of the conversation those are by far the most important of the of the pieces of the puzzle and if you can get and 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 only one of those things is 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 really your responsibility which is the action right so it's my responsibility to help you feel safe because that's the relation nature of our relationship in terms of just not judging you and even if i feel like i'm not judging you but you feel that i'm judging you then it's still my responsibility to make you feel not judged right? It's still up to me. And that's why it's 51%. And then everything else is just trying to figure out what are your, what are the things that intrinsically motivate you to act and to make change in your life, right? That's the exciting part. That's where we start to get into the, into the nitty gritty of like, where does actually, where does change actually come from? And how do we make it desirable? How do we make challenge actually seem exciting rather than scary, right? Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the correlation between the word I used, application, right? So you apply something that you've learned and relating that to integration, it's seem, it seems that whether or not insights come from someone reflecting that to you verbally or modeling it, you watch someone that you admire you know, performing in a way you want to perform, 
or from insights that come from some plant medicine or psychedelic experience, the integration piece is really the same, is it not? Absolutely. And I was thinking about the word integration the other day as it pertains to integrity. So, you know, you, you have this disillusion of self through that level of intimacy and talk therapy, or you have insights that come from divinity or the cosmos or wherever they come from, consciousness itself, perhaps, right. um, in, a, in a more profound type of psychedelic experience. But unless one actually logs those insights, right, and then applies them, it's like they just kind of dissipate. And then it's almost as if the wisdom was never delivered to you because you didn't do it. It's like getting mail that you don't open, right? <laughs> Kind of, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's kind of like, ooh, a letter from God. You're like, nah. You, or maybe you read it and then throw it in a drawer. You don't reread it and think, okay, what are the instructions here, right? Like, right. What am, what's actually the indication for what I'm supposed to do to get out of this thing that I'm in and into something new? Right. Yeah, it's very interesting. And, the, and, the, and this is like the crux of all healing work, no matter what you're doing to heal, what you're trying to heal in yourself or in someone else but focusing on the self for a moment, the whole idea is to create opportunity for, for change, right? Or to recognize that you have opportunity to change and that that opportunity is really sacred and special. It's, it is an opportunity to, to recognize what is not serving us or has not been serving us that we've been potentially taught to do for many, many years or decades and then call that into question, which is which you know we have these parts of our brain that are critical for what we call like self inquiry parts, right? The parts that look inside ourselves, which are right next to the parts, believe it or not, that are responsible for empathy, and act, acting on those parts and using those neurons to go inside ourselves and think, you know, and and just ask the simple questions, right? It doesn't have to be the hard questions like why am I here or what is the meaning of life? Yeah, that's all interesting. But the simpler questions are, what are, my, what are my goals? What do I want out of life? And what am I doing that is maybe not aligned with those goals, right? What am I doing that's unintentional that I was taught to do that's maybe not serving me anymore? Like spending a lot of time thinking about what other people think about me, right? Other people's insights are great. But if we spend all of our time thinking about what other people might be thinking about us, then we that's something we don't have control over in the slightest right the only thing that we can do to improve the way that other people see us is to do our own work right and focus on what we can do to be more secure more whole people and if we're not if we're spending all our time focusing on what other people think rather than actually on what we can do to change then we actually feel more out of control more of the time because we don't have control over what other people think we only have control over what we do and what we think about ourselves and what we allow into our consciousness. And so it gets back to this fundamental core of anxiety, which I think is super interesting that I don't even think they really taught well in medical school or even in my, even in my you know, post-medical school psychiatry training, which is this idea that you only have so much time every day to think about stuff, right? We only have so much conscious attention free. Our subconscious tends to lots of things. That's beneath awareness. Right, our conscious attention within our awareness only has so much time to pay attention to any number of things. If we spend that precious time paying attention to things we don't have control over, then we we feel out of control more of the time, and then that wow. causes anxiety. Right? Treatable. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's yeah. good. That's really good. So the contrary to that wow. is, is use your, that's why that is it true is it useful test is so powerful because it yeah. forces you to put all of your thoughts into question and say, is this true and useful to me right now in this moment? If it's not, it's not worthy of our attention in this moment. It doesn't mean you ignore it completely. It just means you say, hey, I see you. I'll come back to you later, right? And then if it comes back later, you put it through the same test. If it's not true and useful in this moment to think about, then you say, thanks, no thanks. I'll come back to you later. And then eventually you retrain your mental filter to only allow things that are true and useful to you into your conscious awareness. And that's what makes you feel more in control. So it starts just by focusing on things you can control, like breathing, right? Being, expressing gratitude, acts of kindness, compassion, forgiveness, self-love, all of the, what we put into our bodies for food and, and sustenance, exercise and movement, right? Like all of these are like the ancient techniques that have been passed down for thousands and thousands of years through all of these Eastern traditions that sure, maybe they don't all have double blind randomized clinical trials around them yet, but they have thousands of years of lineage that they still and they and we have to ask why do these things still exist there must be a reason that these have been passed these strategies have been passed down for so long right and and it's that control thing that we all desire more than anything else is that's why we act out that's why kids act out right it's because they don't feel in control of their lives so by helping people figure out how we're in control of our attention and that is what free will really means that we choose what is allowed into our consciousness and what's not then all of a sudden, you know, your whole outlook on your life can change relatively quickly. But when you're stuck in the rut of feeling completely disempowered to be able to control anything in your life, for example, with people with PTSD or addiction, it can seem completely out of reach. And that's where psychedelic medicines and, and some of these more interesting techniques that really create like a, a brief period of like a fresh snowfall on your brain that allows you to take your own choose your own path and press pause on the narrative of this is the way I've been thinking about myself, but maybe that's not actually the way I am. You press pause on that tape that's playing in the background. And then all of a sudden you can have a fresh look at yourself for a while, you know, for a little while and see maybe, you know, do some reevaluation, some self-inquiry and ideally in a safe place, figure out the path you actually want to take that's actually aligned with your goals. Over the many years that I've been hosting this podcast, one of the most common questions I get from listeners pertains to water purification. So I'm really excited to tell you guys about the AquaTrue from our friends over at Water and Wellness. The AquaTrue is the first and only countertop reverse osmosis water purifier certified to NSF standards to remove 82 contaminants, including the nasties like lead, chromium-6, chlorine, fluoride, PFAs, nitrates, and more. It's got a four-stage osmosis purification system. So there's a mechanical pre-filter that gets out the sediments and cloudiness. Second one with a carbon pre-filter that removes more than 99% of chlorine and chloramines. And the thing is, you guys, there's a lot of cheap-ass fake filters on the market that will say things on the side like, removes the smell of chlorine. You don't want that. You want something that gets everything out. And the cool thing about this system is there's no plumbing or installation required. You just plug it in and go. In fact, I've got one about 15 feet away from this very chair that we use here in the home every single day. It's also got a digital display that alerts you when it's time to change the filter. And uh, the filters last a really long time. They're very high capacity. And just one set of filters makes the equivalent of 4,500 plastic water bottles. So you're also going to be 
uh, lessening the use of plastic. So if you're ready to get your water purified, go to waterandwellness.com slash story. And they've got an incredible deal over there for you. For $449, you get the AquaTrue system. You get one set of replacement filters, which gives you up to two years of use without filter replacement, and a free 30-day supply of Quinton Sea Mineral Sachets, which is what you use to remineralize the water once you've taken it out. So that's an incredible deal and a savings of over 100 bucks. Again, go to waterandwellness.com story to grab this bundle, as well as many other exclusive offers on products I personally use and recommend. I think something you said in the beginning there is so important, and that is the the principle of self inquiry. I love the work of Byron Katie. You know her her four questions. Um, the first one being, "Is it true?" Mm-hmm. And of having the ability, you say you text someone and they don't text you back, and you're used to them texting you back in in a period of time. And it's they just don't. talking about this. Oh yeah, yeah. And then so the mind funny. will be like, "Did was it that thing I said on Tuesday? I didn't mean anything by that, you know." Or, yeah. Oh, they think they're better than me. They oh really? You don't text me back now? I was there for you when you know all these stories start running, and and they're uh, pause. Yeah, <laughs> the pause, or maybe even running a magnet over the tape and deleting it is just one simple question: Is that true? And right. your emotions will tell you, "Yeah," because I'm feeling this way. Therefore, that thought is true. It's valid. Byron Katie would say, is it really true? Can you really know that that's true? Well, and and I forget the third one, but one of them is, who would you be without that thought? If you didn't believe that true, who would you be? How would you feel? Well, Jesus, I'd, I'd feel free and clear and serene. And well, then maybe let's re-examine that thought. Yeah. And I think in some of the, you know, in a therapeutic model, sans any kind of uh, medicine assistance, you know, that's a great service of a therapist or even just a friend is to go, okay, you know, I do hear you, like you said, not like, well, yeah, I felt like that. So therefore it's no big deal. Uh, but I hear you. Can you really know that that's true? Right. You know, which is what a, a therapist or a, a wise friend or um, advisor would do. And that's also what medicine does, you know, in, in medicine space, it's like, oh, let me chew on this thing. Well, okay. It's like, I'm always sort of invited to look in a certain cavern of my awareness, Right. And sometimes they're beautiful caverns and it's like, wow, let's explore love. And sometimes it's like, hey, you're still kind of stuck in this way. Do you want to look at it? Sure, let's look at it. Put the eye mask back on, take a deep breath, go into the portal. And most of the time it's about discovering that so many things that I thought were true weren't true. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the the disillusion of those thought forms, uh, memories, feelings, traumas, et cetera, is sort of automatic the moment i just realized that it was a fallacy that i was that i was actually buying into a falsehood that is not universally valid and true and it's so freeing but if you don't ask the question right then you don't get to that end goal of letting go of something that's not actually uh, not actually valid that's absolutely right yeah and we kind of forgot how to ask questions you know which is a real tragedy because inquiry is our source of knowledge right and if we if we think that we know everything because we can Google it, which is really useful and a wonderful resource, don't get me wrong, uh, it, it's, we still, you know, without questioning everything we're taught, then we're, we're basing our, our, our fundamental searches on Google are based on assumptions that we've already made prior to making the search, right? Prior to asking the question to Google, we forget that we, you know, 
that we actually have already made a lot of assumptions about what the answer is. And it's even, it, I think what's, what we forget is that very quickly, because certainty is so valuable to us and makes us feel so safe, that we actually don't, we're only certain of like less than 1% of our experiences, right? We, <laughs> like, we know so little oh, to be certain about, which is also freeing if we are able to acknowledge in a safe environment that it's okay to not know, right? It's okay to embrace the unknown because the unknown is a source of growth. It's not, it, it can be scary, but scary things can also be a source of growth, right? Overcoming things that we're afraid of, like, you know, in one of the common examples of doing extreme sports or skydiving or something like that, right? Like people will do that and do these extreme things to show themselves they can overcome their own fear, right? What about emotional stuff? What about more like sensitive emotional based fear, right? What about fear of insecurity, fear of, uh, of not being worthy or not being lovable? right? Like these are many of fears that many of us grow up with. And yet we deny that they are, th that we deny that they are things that we can dive into and actually get closer to and overcome and, and grow from because they're too painful in some ways to allow in. And yet the healing, the truest healing comes when we actually feel safe enough with someone to allow those feelings in and actually face them head on and say, wait a minute, where is this coming from? Right? Where is this, where is this whole set of feelings and emotions and the way I think about myself coming from? And then when you get a chance to actually reflect on that, which might may not actually take that much time when you get to the core, then their real change starts to unfold. That's, I guess that's the foundation of trust starts to grow. Right. I guess this is called by some shadow work. It's mm -hmm. a term that's pretty popular now, I think, with the it's like the converse of um spiritual bypassing, right? Where we don't we don't want to actually, you know, do the skydiving within our own awareness and preconceived notions, et cetera. Uh so we just kind of put on a happy face and pretend like we're spiritual because, you know, we say namaste to everyone, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm using a gross exaggeration, but that's sort of the uh, antidote for that then, right? Is having the courage and the wherewithal to find a safe way in which to explore what your truth really is. Uh, I wanted to ask you something that came up while you're talking was from a psychological point of view, projection as a means by which to avoid what we just described of that brave self-inquiry. And I'm asking because I see that it's something that's so prevalent, at least according to my interpretation of it on social media, as it pertains to cancel culture and <laughs> all of this calling out and dogpiling on people. Uh, I see it a lot in spiritual circles, even um, on For social sure. media. Uh, a lot of it's around uh, ideas like cultural appropriation or calling out a false teacher or teaching. Um, and I see people that are in a position to uplift humanity, and that's what they and their work and brand are about even sometimes, um, being extremely vindictive and cruel under the guise of, I'm helping humanity by identifying the bad players and the phonies, right? And to me, it's like, 
having been someone who used to live with a tremendous amount of hatred and resentment, I mean, I'm not like, I mean, all of us have been there most of yeah, the time it was, at, some, at some point in our lives. Right? <laughs> a lot of my life, my thoughts were con- consumed with revenge and, you know, fantasies of harming people. I mean, I was a very, very sick person, uh, emotionally and mentally. So I, I get it. But now when I'm sort of tempted into, you know, something like a Twitter beef or whatever, I'm defending myself or defending someone else or going on the offense or something like that. I think a lot of the time, if I take a moment and pause, I find that, ah, there's a wound in me that's still triggered. And oftentimes it's the thing that I'm still working on that is one of those wounds or a manifestation of a wound that I get so much perceived pleasure out of calling out in in someone else. And it seems to me that that's very common in the world of social media where everyone has a voice and people value that significance so much, right? There's also the significance juice that one gets out of being right and having a voice and taking a stand. So I don't know if there's a question in this, maybe you could just riff on this whole phenomenon that we're seeing so prevalently now um, socially. And I think the tricky thing about it for me is that I also believe in just cause and I believe in people helping other people, especially those that have been disenfranchised um, as so many humans have over the years. So it's like, from one perspective, you just stop doing all social justice work because everyone should just work on themselves. Then, well, who's going to get the job done for the other people, right? But there's just such a sneaky little hiding place within that self-righteousness and self-indignation that I see coming across as what I would call projection. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and I, and you put it in a very in a very thoughtful way. I think that so they're not mutually exclusive, right? The I think the way the way that I'll that I'll start to tackle this topic is that we can't fight for peace, right? <laughs> right. We can't. Yeah, yeah. You just can't fight for peace. You have to make peace for peace, and right. making peace outside of ourselves and with other human beings and our communities and the earth starts with making peace within ourselves. And this is not knowledge that I made up. This is ancient knowledge that's been around for thousands of years, maybe more. And uh, it is still true, as true today as it was when it was first conceived of by the ancient tribes people of all over the world. And I think there's certainly, it's certainly a testament that all of these different tribes people from all over the world who have didn't have the internet and didn't have facebook all came to the same conclusion right that you you have to you have to make peace within yourself before you can actually be a an an a uh, arbiter of peace outside of yourself and if you are have unrest within yourself then you will perpetuate unrest outside of yourself and so projection is the way that sigmund freud coined a what he called an immature coping strategy because and I, I can't you know and 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 I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily a huge fan of all of Freud's theories and all of his lingo, but there were certain things that he ideas that he came up with and described very well like projection, which is which he called immature because it's the idea that you're trying to fight for peace, right? You, you don't feel at peace in yourself. There's, there's insecurity within you. And then you see that insecurity within others. And then you're extra sensitive to it because it reminds you of the insecurity within you and, you. and you then demean them or judge them publicly or privately because you 
are actually sensitive to that because it's something that you feel as well, but it doesn't actually make it better, right? It doesn't actually fix the problem. And, and so, you know, what, based on what, and, and that projection is a very real thing that can cause a lot of harm. And, and I think just so that everybody understands what we're talking about, we're talking about, you know, the idea of projection is when you feel a certain way within yourself that could be insecurity generally about any number of things, and then you literally project that insecurity onto someone else as if it's coming from them, hmm. but it's coming from you. It's always coming from you. And sometimes there's something that another person will do that will bring it up in you and make it stronger, which makes it really seem like it's coming from them, but it's coming from you. That's the why Freud called it an immature coping strategy. So, you know, it's one thing to call it immature. I think it's more interesting to think about, well, what's the, what's the higher level of coping strategies that you could replace that with, right? So Freud, my favorite two that Freud uh, came up with were, or, or coined in terms of, char- you know, characterizing these human behaviors are humor, which is my absolute favorite because, uh, you know, if you can take something and make it funny, then you can generally figure out a way to get through it, right? And and humor is definitely a, an equalizer amongst people where, you know, you've heard the saying, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Well, you can avoid a lot of crying by laughing, right? And that is a very powerful way to make peace. It's also an escape hatch from ego and the exactly. seriousness of... Uh... Exactly. And yeah, being able to self-deprecate, being able to laugh at yourself, you know, it's it's absolutely critical. It's not an option, you know, it is absolutely critical to mental well-being. I honestly think humor is, and it's funny, I've heard other people say this too. Humor is like one of the sole reasons why the Jewish people as a community have survived for so long, despite all of the chaos and persecution that's happened over, you know, thousands of years. And then the other side of it is that's really, really interesting is something we touched on earlier, which Freud called sublimation. Right. So if you sublimation means taking, recognizing that you have that insecurity within you or that something happens around you that makes you uncomfortable or reminds you of, of being uncomfortable um, in certain ways. And then you take that discomfort and you, ch- and you channel it into an act of positivity. So for example, feeling like feeling really sad or angry about something that might have happened to you, and then taking that anger, expressing gratitude and the sadness, expressing gratitude for it, not necessarily for what happened to you, but gratitude for the feeling that you have, so that you can understand that energy and where it's coming from, and then put it into something that actually makes your life better and makes the lives of others better around you. Because anger, as one great example, is one of the most powerful energies we ever feel. And if we channel that into creative expression, art, music, uh, you know, connecting with other human beings in a positive way or curating environments in a positive way, our co-host is back, um, then sharing love with other human beings, right? Then that anger starts to take a new form because it actually becomes useful, not alienating. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the lower states of consciousness inherently give one access to less power and angers maybe, you know, a quarter up the scale. I'm thinking of the map of consciousness uh, that David Hawkins created, right? And that love being the most infinitely powerful potential um, 
energy to work with. Whereas like down in apathy and shame, those are kind of at the bottom. I mean, total apathy is maybe the lowest where you don't even care enough to get pissed off. (laughs) If you can work your way up to anger, at least anger is motivating, but ultimately it's not the most powerful way to deal with something. So when it comes to this phenomenon of cancel culture and projection and all of this, maybe anger is a starting point because you see something, you say, that's wrong. Well, what are we going to do about it now, right? It's like uh, Mother Teresa would refuse famously to participate in uh, anti-war rallies, but she would uh, only participate in pro-peace rallies. It's a, it's a subtle nuance, but you can see the power in that, right? Mm-hmm. Because now you're for something rather than being against something. Exactly. So there's an inherent, um, uh, I guess, effectiveness in that perspective. And it's, that's a positive example, right? Right. It's like, so the idea that you could feel angry, it's so easy to project that anger out onto someone else because who wants to admit that they're actually angry at themselves, right? That's a very uncomfortable thing to admit. And yet we all feel it all the time. So once you, so once you actually recognize it and you start to admit it, then you can take a step back and have some of that pause that we were talking about earlier and just say, okay, let's just, let's just pause on this feeling for a second, right? What is this feeling? Let's not judge it. Let's not call it good or bad. Let's not assume that just because I'm angry that something really bad happened. Let's just feel the anger, right? As hard as that is, which is challenging at first, let's just feel it. And let's just feel where it's coming from, feel what it's trying to tell me. Maybe I made a mistake. It's okay. Mistakes are how we learn. It's how we grow and get better. And what can I do with this energy now that I have rather than taking it down maybe one of these what Freud called the immature coping strategies like intellectualization where you justify that you're smart you know because uh, I'm because I'm so smart you know I'm allowed to be angry at other people and it's their f- fault right or you know rationalizing it in certain ways that you can you know make it okay for you to project onto others it's more taking a step back from all of that and just recognizing that I'm feeling what I'm feeling let's figure out what the most constructive way to use this energy is. And when you don't judge it and you allow an opportunity, talking about opportunities for healing, right? When you, when you reserve judgment, we allow an opportunity for gratitude to come in. And when gratitude comes in, then gratitude creates opportunities for using that energy in all of these other different ways that we may not have ever realized were possible before. Some of the most incredible things in the world have been created with angry energy, not just things that we might think of as bad, but even things we might think of as good, like art, right? And music and, and, and sad energy, right? Sad energy makes incredible emotional art pieces and these things that really make us feel in ways that we may not have felt before. And there's so many other manifestations of this when it gets channeled or sublimated into something constructive, but we have to make sure that we know that we deserve the time to do that, right? We deserve the time to actually feel what we're feeling and not judge ourselves for it. It's really the judgment that gets us all caught up and, and confused about what we're supposed to be feeling. And that is something we're taught. Going back to Pink Floyd, right? The wall. <laughs> Question everything you're taught. Yeah. Just because you were taught that you're feeling a certain way is bad doesn't mean it's bad. It means that it's a feeling. Right. It's up so, to you to figure out what that means. It's like, just a signal. Like the kid with the oppressive parent that always shuts them down when they want to express their emotions or something like right. that, right? They end up as a repressed person. I think um, 
Yeah, there's so much value in what you're saying. I, I was brought to think of when in a situation wherein you stub your toe, right? It's like it hurts so much worse and for much more duration when you stifle the feeling, right? Whereas if you actually just focus on your toe and just go into the pain, within seconds it dissipates. It's it's the resistance to it, right? It's the avoidance of it. And I think with emotional pain, at least in my experience, it's the same way. And, and perhaps that's where a lot of this projection comes from, right? Because someone is unwilling or unable to really go within and experience what they might perceive to be negative feeling that it just kind of gets stuffed away and stuffed away until there's a trigger point of something that instigates them to behave inappropriately or harmfully uh, because they didn't take the time to actually investigate that and really feel into it. Right. It's just incredible how fast things pass when we allow ourselves to feel them. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and it's just being present with what you're feeling in the moment, right? Being present with something is not it is means reserving judgment. If we allow judgment in, then we're not pre we're not fully present with what it is we're experiencing. That's why Apollo is so interesting, right? Because when you think about safety and the power of safety, safety in a lot of ways means that you're safe from judgment, right? So by our minds are are like contrast generation machines. They're constantly judging. They're constantly, they're, there's an amygdala in the center of all of them going back hundreds of millions of years to ancient animal, reptiles. It's called the reptilian brain that is constantly seeking contrast and trying to distinguish A from B and B from C and, and et cetera, right? And white from black, like on Cookie, right? Which makes Cookie extra cute. And it contributes to lots of beauty in our lives that we can detect this contrast. At the same time, when we're overwhelmed, contrast can be really scary. And newness itself can be really scary. And so when we've been taught to think about things and interpret the world in a certain way, like, for example, being taught that it's not okay to express anger, which is one of the most common things that many of us are taught growing up because it scares other people or because blah, 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 right? That you're not supposed to... It's, it's, it's an unacceptable emotion or sadness, for instance. Then what happens is you don't feel safe expressing it. You don't feel safe talking about it with anyone. And where does that emotion go? Well, it certainly doesn't go away. It ends up getting turned inward on yourself, right? It actually gets stored up in your body, which is what the body keeps the scores about. It's those emotions when not let out and not acknowledged as the signals that they are get then turned inward on us. And then we end up taking that anger and that sadness out on ourselves, which becomes guilt and shame, and then disrupts our safe sense of safety, self and self-efficacy and empowerment even more. So by that's why the eye-to-eye -eye contact thing is so interesting, right? And the idea that just by listening to someone and making eye-to-eye -eye contact with them and 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 you know, really being present with someone and not judging them, you model for them what they can do for themselves by holding their hand, by giving them a hug, by wearing an Apollo you send safety signals to your brain that reminds you that this, as scary as these emotions might be that you're feeling, that if, if, you're, if you can pay attention and, and dedicate mental resources to the feeling of somebody holding your hand or gazing you in the eye or, or uh, the vibra vibration of Apollo, then you can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment, right? And so it just allows your everything to kind of just settle down and the sympathetic tone just kind of settles down 
Because the body doesn't know the difference between running from a lion and your too many emails or somebody looking at you funny across the room or traffic. Your body reacts the same way to all of that stuff. It's up to us to recognize that we have the ability to reestablish a sense of safety and a sense of presentness and reserve judgment of those experiences so that we can have as much access to our mental faculties as possible. Judgment is like literally sapping away our mental resources from this infinitely present moment where anything is possible. And it starts to trap us in a box of basically a fear box that prevents us from really seeing what we're capable of. So all of these different technologies, Apollo being just you know one of many, um, is just the beginning of how technology can help us to be more human, right? Rather than being more in our phones and more ex- outside of ourselves, more in our heads, we can actually want to be more in our bodies. Being in our bodies is yeah. where being human really is because the body's yeah. always present. The mind can be anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, consciousness can be anywhere too. <laughs> you know, right. The out of body experience is the near death experience, plant medicine. I mean, in those situations, I've only had uh, the latter, but there, there's no you there anymore. So where are you? Well, the only you that is present outside of consciousness is the body, right? It's such a great anchor. Um, you were talking about the amygdala and that that's where contrast, where safe, not safe comes from. Is this where? the negativity bias comes from as well, where we're kind of always scanning our environment for what could go wrong. And then that signal then indicates to some of us, some of the time that it's, it really is going to go wrong. Not just, well, I should watch out for this, but then the rumination of anxiety and all of that begins. Is that rooted in the same part of the brain? It's connected. Mm. So, so the amygdala has its own, synaptic connections that are involved in what we call um, a conditioned fear response, which is like the core of fear memory. But it's not, it's not necessarily a decision maker in and of itself. It's connected directly to the insula, which is right next to, right next to it on the inside of the emotional cortex that is responsible for empathy, interoception, feeling our bodies, the feeling of our heart, our lungs, our internal organs, um, and then introspection, looking inside ourselves, that's where a lot of that self-criticism and self-judgment comes in, right? And But also self-compassion and self-love and self-gratitude. And so these parts are connected and the insula, which you can actually see has evolved in a very specific way throughout ancient animals through humans, where it's evolved to favor communality evolved to favor social connection and and uh and community building is also the place where we store a lot of our emotional memories right and so the amygdala might and and again there's still a lot more work to be done in this area but the um, when you're exposed say you're already overwhelmed and you're stressed out and the and you're exposed to something new or you're trying to change an old habit and you're under stress the amygdala starts to detect that newness and it just fires off and it's just firing newness, newness, newness. And then mm-hmm. your emotional brain detects that and says, oh, well, I'm already overstimulated. So newness gets associated with threat. And then that sends a signal back to the what's called the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the well, one way to think about it is the motor action of emotionality, right? So the idea that when you feel something, then there's an action that might follow. And that action starts with increasing your heart rate. 
increasing your blood pressure by tightening your vessels, diverting as much blood flow as possible to your skeletal muscles, your heart, your lungs, your motor cortex of your brain, because that part of the brain does not know that you are not running from a predator at that moment. It just knows that you're perceiving threat, which is really, really interesting because actual threat and perceived threat get are basically equivalent, right? So it's really, really critical for us to make sure that we actually train ourselves and train our children in safety techniques from the beginning, from very young age, so that when you're exposed to something that might trick you into thinking that it's threatening or might seem threatening because it's too fast or too loud or too different or whatever, um, that it's that we actually can reappraise, right? And then you can take, you can have that pause coming back to the same same word again, right? You can, can have a pause that you're in control of, and you could. Do it from something as simple as taking a deep breath in that moment or putting your hands on your chest or rubbing the inside of your palm or holding a pet, right? Or giving somebody or getting a hug from someone that just reminds you that you're safe and that this contrast could be interesting, but it's not a survival threat, right? And then you start to rewire that connection to the amygdala and the emotional cortex and the cingulate that says, okay, I don't need to kick up my heart rate in this moment. I don't need to get into a total sympathetic fight or flight response in this moment because I'm actually safe in this moment. And then as you start to do that more and more, you start to realize that you're, you can in, initiate that sense of safety on your own and you don't necessarily need someone else there. Um, and, and a lot of this came from you know, Skinner's work back in the day, a Pav, you know, the Pavlov's dog conditioning, um, Eric Kandel, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002, and this idea of fear causes changes to neural networks, and then you can extinguish that fear through safety. And then that also causes the reversal of those changes to the neural network. So it's literally a practice makes perfect thing. Wow. So there's neuroplasticity awareness now around that. Oh, yeah. The show you're listening to would not be possible without the support from our friends over at Super Speciosa. These guys make an incredible line of Kratom products. If you're not familiar with Kratom, and I'd be surprised if you weren't because I talk about it quite a bit on the show, it's an all-natural herb related to the coffee plant that has been used in Thailand and other South Asian countries for centuries. It helps energize your mind while at the same time relaxing your body. It's really an incredible plant medicine. And Super Speciosa only has one ingredient pure kratom leaf. And the issue with this herb is that there's a lot of really shady characters selling it online and gas stations. You might even see it at a liquor store. And there are issues with contamination such as heavy metals, molds, etc. These guys test for purity and they also select the very specific strains that are going to achieve the desired result, whether that's easing pain in your body, relaxing, chilling out, or even prepping for a workout. So this is a great social lubricant for me and something that I've been using on a regular basis. And I've looked far and wide, trust me, to find great strains. And also, as I said, to find a clean version of it. Now, if you're gonna check this out and you're new to it, I would encourage you to try their Signature Super Speciosa strain. It's the most popular, most well-rounded, and also best-selling. If you're ready to get your hands on some Kratom and give it a shot, here's what you do. Go to getsuperleaf.com luke. And if you want to save 20%, use the code Luke at checkout to save 20% on your entire order. Again, that's getsuperleaf.com slash Luke.
You know, it's interesting. A couple of years ago, I was in a, a car accident post ayahuasca ceremony in Costa Rica. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was the day after the four ceremonies and the car flipped over. And I mean, no one was terribly hurt, but scary. I think because I was in such an elevated space, it didn't seem to be traumatic. I was just, I don't know, I guess, present to the experience. And right. it's kind of, oh, we're upside down. This is interesting. But what was trippy about it is I've noticed um, over the course of the past couple of years, I'm rarely the passenger because I like to drive. But when I am, if I'm in the front seat, like I was, and we go uh, around a left-hand turn, like a curve in a windy road, I start to brace myself. And I started to notice that. I was like, why am I doing that? I'm like, oh, it's because that's the last thing I saw was the driver not turning the wheel when the road turned. And then, ah, you know, we flipped over. Interestingly enough, um, I've not worked on it specifically, but I think because of the other reprogramming that I've done, uh, I very rarely have that experience now because now I'm kind of looking out for it. You know, I'll, I'll notice when Allison's driving, all these windy roads in Texas are a great test uh, lab for this, but uh, I'll notice like I, I'll start to want to brace and I go, oh no, actually I don't, I don't do that anymore. It's weird. It somehow has kind of worked itself out, but can you imagine how many of us, well, you don't have to imagine, I'm sure you're aware how many of us are running around with all of these micro or macro trauma triggers that are controlling our every move because we're bracing or influencing ourselves. influencing at least. Yeah, yeah, right. right. We're, we're bracing for something that brace reminds us. <laughs> yeah, brace for impact. Yeah. Off something that is totally subconscious and we don't even know that we're, we're, we're going tense at that moment. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, God, it's fascinating. So many directions I wanted to go. Oh, I know. When you're talking about real threat versus perceived threat, it brought to mind the phenomenon of sitting in a movie theater watching a horror movie, right? And when it's when it starts to get too intense and too real and we're too enthralled in the story, uh, many of us, including myself, I mean, I, I try to avoid horror movies, but even if a movie gets really incredibly violent and gory, uh, I'll tend to just close my eyes and or even just turn around and look at people or look up the lights or the exit sign or something to remember like, oh yeah, this is not actually happening, right. you know? But I think it's a great sort of um, metaphor for that kind of experience where we get so uh, enraptured by our stress response that it's very difficult for us to close our eyes and go, wait, this is not real, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it is possible because we know that sitting in a movie, like you just take a pause, look at your phone, do something, Right. And then all of a sudden the movie's not real anymore. Right. But many of us are really living in that movie all of the time. Right. You know, some more than others, or at least periodically dipping into that horror movie of phantasmagoria of mentation. Um, tell me how the Apollo works. I, I think last time we did the interview, like today, we got into so many cool topics that I don't think I ever got a solid understanding. I know we've, we've mentioned it. Um, and I have mine on, as I said, people are probably often wonder why I'm, always, <laughs> why I'm always wearing this thing. Uh, those in that camera can see it. I'm always wearing a clock with no face on it. Um, so when it comes to delivering the sense of safety to the body, how do the different, because it vibrates for mm -hmm. those listening, it's got a very subtle adjustable vibration. How does that vibrating give us a sense of safety or help me sleep or focus? Or like I have mine on the, I think, two hour social and open. Same. Which is, absolutely for sure works it's my favorite for yeah for public for interviews public speaking yeah it, it really is i don't want to go so far as to say it's like half a glass of wine but it's i've heard that before it's similar yeah. in that 
you're less inhibited and kind of more just looser. It's just looser. And I guess that's that sense of safety. So maybe break down how it works. I think it's just fascinating. It seems so simple. Yeah, this thing you put on, it vibrates and then you feel a certain way. But like, I know there's got to be a lot more science to it. It took you five years of R&D. So it's right. not just like some random vibration. How do the frequencies work, et cetera? So, so I'll start with the most simple explanation and then we can dive deeper. All right, cool. So the best way to think about Apollo is that it's music. That's We all know that music makes us feel different at different situations, right? We listen to certain kinds of music when we're winding up to work out or go go out with our friends. We listen to other kinds of music when we're chilling out or meditating or relaxing. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily mix those musics, right? You wouldn't listen to music that you'd listen to when you're working out, when you're trying to fall asleep. It wouldn't wouldn't go well. Yeah, don't put on Metallica right. as, you, as you lay your head down for a good night's rest. Right. And, and the reason for that is because music in its elegance and complexity actually has this very simple element to it, which is called rhythm. And rhythm has an energy, right? And there's certain rhythms that are fast-paced, which give us energy and, and make our our literally interact with our nervous system and make our heart rate go up and our and our respiratory rate go up and they and they make us feel energized and want to do stuff and want to move and then there's other kinds of music that do the complete opposite and there's other kinds of music that make us go inward right and and activate that in in introspective part of our minds where it makes us makes you want to look inside yourself or meditate right and so i've always been a music fan huge music fan i grew up playing music i was never that as good as as playing instruments as I wanted to be, but I always had a great respect for, uh, you know, instrumentalists and, and musicians. And, and so my best friends are musicians and all of our original research team actually at the University of Pittsburgh were either musicians that were, we were all musicians at one time of different varying levels of success. Um, obviously not professional, uh, because we went to neuroscience and psychiatry, <laughs> but this really left a, uh, an impact on us that always left us asking the question, why does music do what it does? Right? What is it about music that makes us feel differently, that makes us want to focus or makes us want to fall asleep or get energized or whatever? And so we basically, during that time from 2014 through 2018, it started out by trying to figure out how to tap into the emotional nervous system without a brain implant, without something invasive that you put into your body or a drug by going through the skin with electricity or sound or vibration, and then figuring out basically on the understanding of how that nervous system works, the touch receptor system, the sensory system in the skin, can we compose music for your skin that your skin is receptive to that the ears are not? Because when we have headphones on all the time, you can't really give a talk, right? You can't easily you know, do surgery or run a business meeting or do any number of other things that require your ears to participate because our society is so is so auditorily centered and visually and auditory are probably the two most primary senses that our society requires, not requires, but really asks people to have available online at most times. And so we thought, you know, is there a way, if music can do this, then and we know that touch, for instance, is the oldest sensation that is the most powerful way to convey safety to each other and has been for millions and millions of years. And even going back to ancient animals would snuggle each other to convey safety to one another when they're uh, you know, falling asleep or, or um, in any number of situations, nursing young and that kind of thing. 
that there could be and should be based on all of the work that had been done up until that point of you know 2014 that there that there absolutely should be if all all the work that's been up until this point is true a way for us to tap into the touch response system in our skin to be able to give people that same feeling of safety that they get from somebody holding your hand or from holding cookie or from, as you're talking I'm like oh my god this feels good I feel so it feels so yeah, good yeah. right and unfortunately we live in a somewhat repressed society where you know especially in the western world where touch is almost demeaned and people are taught that it's only sexual or there's a sexual connotation to it and that's so couldn't be further from the truth like what about like non-intimate not or sorry intimate non-sexual touch like people engage in all of the european countries and in latin america where they kiss each other when they meet and they express outward affection when they meet what better way to convey a sense of community and a sense of closeness, right? That helps people let their guard down. I remember when guys didn't even hug. Right. I, I was so shocked the first time I went to the UK. I used to play music too, and we would go um, tour the UK. And I was like a hippie from California. So especially yeah. like someone goes, we all look. hug growing up yeah, in California. Yeah, right? at the, and at the end of a show, people would come up and like, oh, great gig. And they want you to sign a CD and stuff. Even though we were not famous, we were in these little villages where we'd play. But I'd go to give these guys a hug and it was like, you know, they thought I was trying to make out with them or yeah. something, you know, I was like, oh, it's different. It's just a, not a cultural norm uh, in some places. It's really interesting. Also, I noticed in India, uh, contrary to the UK, was that a lot of men hold hands. Mm -hmm. Like you'll see like really old. In old, Italy too. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Older kids uh, hold like holding their dad's hand, not mm -hmm. a three-year-old, five-year-old, but 16 year old walking around with their dad or even just and with their friends yeah, yeah yeah or even just a couple of guys and i thought that was at first i thought i thought wow i didn't know like homosexuality was so open here you know it's kind of southern india is very conservative right. you know i mean that was really my initial thought i was like wow cool good for you guys yeah. progressive you know i was like awesome uh you know but then i realized no no, no it's not it's, it's not, not that they're they're buddies you yeah. know and i thought man even i would feel strange like Hey, homie. And then we walk into, you know, a restaurant holding hands. I, I just wouldn't occur to me, but I've always been a big hugger. Right. I think you're, you're right in your assessment that in some cultures, um, for whatever puritanical or fear-based reasons, we've kind of eliminated such a critical part of our well-being. And there's a lot of different reasons why that might've happened. You know, I think that we can get into another time, but <laughs> I think that, you know, when people are more are further apart from each other with with touch you know and, and touch being not a part of our lives that we feel more isolated and then we need to buy more stuff to satisfy Ooh, our urges damn, you know what i mean because when you especially with drugs right like when you when you actually look at the neurobiology of what we're talking about here you know and 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 just getting back to Apollo in one sec, when you yeah. look at the neurobiology of touch, which is how we developed Apollo, the same neurotransmitters that are activated by somebody holding your hand or giving you a hug are the same neurotransmitters that people seek to activate when they use most illicit substances or alcohol or anything, which are the norepinephrine system, the endorphin system, the endogenous opioid system, the endocannabinoid system, the... Uh, the dopamine system, the serotonin system, right? All oxytocin, 
all of those neurotransmitters and hormones, which are wonderful and really make us feel safe and comfortable and connected and accepted by our community and just whole and fulfilled, are sustainably achievable with soothing touch, with connection to our loved ones, with empathy. And yet, when we're deprived of those things, we seek it from other sources. Wow. Why wouldn't you expect people to seek it from other sources? Right. right. So, so I don't want to get into the agenda behind that because yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think we know enough to say. But yeah. it is it does help to explain a lot of why people end up going down a path of substance abuse because they don't feel safe and they're not yeah. getting that natural stimulation from sustainable things in their lives, or it's purposefully withheld from them, not necessarily intentionally, but because their family or their friends weren't taught how to convey safety in that way. And I noticed this in my patients working with a lot of veterans at the University of Pittsburgh. And we saw this happening. It was even more common in them because they had like coming back from war, you go from a place of having tons of responsibility and having lots of people rely on you to not having any responsibility necessarily or or feeling totally disempowered and disconnected from community when you're back on the civilian side. And there aren't necessarily a lot of support groups. And so what do you do? You rely on whatever you can to satisfy that discomfort. And it often, unfortunately, was illicit substances or alcohol or or even abusing prescription medicine. And so, and, and when we talked to these people, it was very clear. You look at their bodies, you look at what their bodies are doing, you talk to them and their bodies are showing they're not safe. Their heart rate variability is in the pits. Their resting heart rate's really high. They, t- they say they feel like shit all the time. And they talk about how they never feel safe, right? Wow. God, I can imagine too, in, in the case of vets, as you're saying that, I, I mean, you're surrounded by, I mean, in combat, I'm sure, horrific levels of trauma and fear and nonstop sympathetic fight or flight. Right. That's what's necessary, I would think, right? To be effective in that. And I can't imagine you know, after a big shootout and a tense moment, one soldier grabbing another one, man, let's, I need to hug it out. You know, I'm crying, being held, these kind of, you know, fundamental human needs, I'm sure are even much less accessible in that kind of situation when it, it's actually needed the most, right? Right. I'm not to say, I don't, I don't know how effective combat would be if everyone was hugging and crying <laughs> in the face of imminent danger, but, you know, in terms of the aftershock of that, it, it must make those traumas even more impactful because of the lack of processing and healing that needs to take place um, after you've been exposed right and and that can be applied to literally any stressor so i'll so i'll bring it back full circle to something that's like probably a much more commonly experienced thing by most people which is uh social anxiety or public speaking anxiety right so you would never most people would never guess that i had social and performance anxiety me just, too. Right. Yeah. Which is not the thing too. that most people would guess. So why do we put ourselves like in the public eye? I think about that sometimes. Like I used to be so terrified playing music on stage. I mean, I was, it was just, it, it's, it was horrible. Yeah. I yeah. Couldn't I, even, mean, I used to do that too. That's actually one of the reasons I stopped playing. Yeah. I used to play piano and I stopped because in, I stopped performing out, uh, in, in you know events or whatever because it like i would like i couldn't stop myself from like sweating on the keys <laughs> you know and i was like this is uncomfortable you know i'm not enjoying myself i'm gonna play for myself you yeah, know and yeah same here so so what's interesting is that that is a perceived threat response right a perceived threat response that even though we may not be thinking about it in that way it's based on going back to what we were talking about earlier spending too much time thinking about what other people are thinking about us while we're doing it. 
Right. Right. So if you if we acknowledge that that's what's happening, and then we go back into that performance environment with something like Apollo One, which is actually how I retrain my my brain to not go into alarm mode when I was giving a talk, I realized with Apollo that I had enough pause to recognize that why that I was thinking about what other people were thinking about me. And then the pause allowed me to have an immediate follow-up thought, which is that if these people are constantly thinking about criticizing me and, and, and everything I say and, and giving me a hard time at my talks, then like, why, why would they be here listening to me? Why would they take the time out? If they didn't care about what I had to say, if they didn't have any interest in what I had to say, why would they be here at all? And I was like, okay, I can get down with that. They're here because they want to hear me talk, right? So hmm. how am I going to make them think more highly of me and enjoy my talk more? Well, I'm going to devote as many of my cognitive resources to just giving my talk and knowing that I, I, I practiced, I prepped for this, and that I'm comfortable giving this talk because I know this material. That's why they're here to see me, right? Just like, you know your music. That's why they're here to see you. And so when I started to realize that, and then I started to practice giving more talks with the Apollo on, and this is back a few years ago when I had the early prototypes, it was, it was like a extinction like a like a fear extinction practice where the apollo made me feel safe or allowed me to feel safe in present in my body rather than in my head which was left to its own devices in other people's heads right thinking about what they mm-hmm. were thinking about me and it brought me back to my body back to the present and was like you just need to talk right just do what you're here to do and people will see that you're present and that you're doing what you're here to do, and you will come off looking more professional and looking like you know what you're here to do, right? It's just kind of like that cycle of, of thought. And, as I, and, and at first, I was like, you know, I'm a skeptical guy. I was like kind of skeptical of these own thoughts that were popping in my head. But I'm like, you know what? I just want to slow down my heart rate and stop sweating during my talk. So I'm going to just go with it and see what happens like an experiment. And little by little, one talk here, another talk there, I started to feel more calm in my talks than I'd ever felt in my life. And I was like, this is crazy how quickly this is working. And now I still wear it because I like it, but I don't need it. And if I don't have it, I'm fine, which I never had before. So I literally proved to myself that I could retrain my own brain from a fear response that a lot of us struggle with that for a while was only getting worse and I did not know what to do, you know? And it was, uh, it was a powerful learning experience for me. Wow, very cool. There's another piece in that, that uh, obsessive thinking about what other people think of you, right? So the public speaking is a great example because it's so terrifying to many right. people. And, and I still get nervous before I do a talk in front of a crowd. Not so much in podcasts, but um, you know, if there's a bunch of people watching, but it subsides is if I just connect to my heart and just get impassioned. Oftentimes I start my talks with some sort of, audience participation practice to bring us all present mm-hmm. into our breath and even specifically into our hearts. Like that's kind of, they might not know, but it's really my medicine, you know, yeah. to also just form a coherence with, with the collective consciousness of the room and all that. But um, back to the point of, say you're up in front of a room and say 50% of the people in there just hate you and want to tear you apart. And that's the thing we're afraid of. I've had the realization at times that if somebody is that judgmental and 
narrow-minded, not like you have to be open-minded to agree with me, but I know that if I was sitting in an audience going, fuck this guy, like uh, like self-talking and judging, like I wouldn't want to be friends with that guy anyway, right? It's like people that don't vibe with us aren't people that you want to hang out with or that you necessarily want respect or approval from. And that's a really empowering way to view it as well. It's not only that feeling safe, but just going, if somebody hates me and what I'm about, then I wouldn't be friends with them anyway. What would we have to talk about? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So just let them keep that. And I just go about being the best me that I can be. You know, it's really, really powerful. What else do you have control over? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like being, reminding ourselves, like with the techniques you do, I also do those techniques of kind of like centering the audience around a breath work for a minute or around a standing up and stretch for a minute, because that not only centers everybody on what, you know, on the event, on the moment, um, but it does do the same thing that Apollo does, right? It, it brings us back into our bodies. And not everyone has learned how to do that the way that you and I now do, but there are, uh, but, but that's the same exact mechanism. It's, we're all in our head, you know, I'm in my head, let's center the head, the mind back in the body, let's bring it back to, to let's ground ourselves. And then knowing that, you know, if I am more present, if I am more grounded in myself when I'm giving a talk, then I'm l- way less likely to slip up because my attention is fully on what I'm doing right now. Remember that remembering that we only have so many cognitive conscious resources available to us at any time. There's lots of subconscious resources. Those are doing other things, right? Those drive your car and brush your teeth and do the things that you don't have to think about, right? Well, yeah, and, and deal with the feeling of the clothes on your skin, right? Or the feeling of the, the floor under your feet or the chair under your body that you don't necessarily want in your awareness, but you do want to know that you're safe in your environment. So the subconscious stuff is really critical for that sort of baseline of, of safety that our consciousness is always questioning, particularly when we're insecure or have been taught to be uncomfortable in certain kinds of situations like public speaking, right? Or in a social situation. I can't tell you how much better my social, my social interactions got when I was more, what started to be grounded in myself and just recognize like by using Apollo that if I am not thinking about what other people are doing or thinking about me, I literally free up cognitive resources to just be me. And if I'm just me, people like me a hell of a lot more (laughs) Yeah, because I don't come off as insecure and then they don't project their insecurities onto me, right? So you can see how that leads into the back to the projection thing, right? Yeah, It's like what we radiate comes back to us. And if we radiate insecurity, we actually attract more insecure people and more insecurity comes towards us. And if we radiate confidence and graciousness and presentness and non-judgment and acceptance, then that's what comes back to us. And so it's critically important for us to recognize that even if we are hearing this for the first time today, that we have the opportunity to choose that to focus on at any time. And then that's what takes over most of our consciousness, which helps us to be more graceful and more at peace in all of our interactions and better the best part is that we attract more people that are like the people we actually want to be spending our time with to us rather than people who we might not want to spend as much time with <laughs> right, right right yeah yeah there's a, a, a um you know what's the word i'm looking for a resonance there it's right? a resonance yeah yeah it's like two two notes of music that are harmonious versus eh. 
Yeah, um, versus dissonant. Yeah, dissonant. Right. Yes, that's the word. Um, so I love with, those words. So with the Apollo and these this vibrations that uh, induce this sense of safety, how did you figure out what vibrations or frequencies do what? So like I wouldn't put on the social and open setting if I want to sit down and do task work or write a book or something, right? I would put on focus or something else. How did you determine what they are? Was it just tons of R&D experimenting or are there actual sets of frequencies that are known to have this effect? So a couple different ways, right? So we first drew from our knowledge of music, knowing that certain rhythms and certain tempos increase energy and certain ones decrease energy. And that was kind of the initial framework that we started with. Then we started to look at more complex rhythms and really trying to understand what rhythms the body gets into, speaking of resonance, right? When you are doing a biofeedback exercise or in a float tank or meditating or doing yoga or in a sound bath, what happens to your heart and lungs? And it turns out that something fairly reliable happens to your heart and lungs subconsciously when you're doing any of those things, particularly well-studied from the field of biofeedback, which is where we really started to gain an understanding of what heart rate variability really means as a balance between the parasympathetic uh, rest and digest recovery nervous system and the sympathetic fight or flight system is that when you throw somebody, a healthy person, into a biofeedback system, which is an EKG, car- uh, cardiac rhythm assessment uh, with the stickers, and a uh, in the old, old school, original way, um, started in the 60s, and you throw them into that, and they have a respiratory monitor on, and then they're looking on the screen and seeing their heart rhythm and seeing their respiratory rhythm, when you ask those people to match their rhythms and don't tell them how, it's something like 95% of people, healthy people, match their rhythm within 90 seconds. And when they match their rhythms, just by looking at them on the screen, hence the biofeedback, their rhythms start to match somewhere between five and seven breaths per minute. And it's right around five to seven breaths per minute that heart rate variability goes up which is a sign that you're boosting activity to the recovery parasympathetic recovery rest and digest nervous system that goes that is activated by safety right so if we think of the sympathetic fight or flight system as being triggered by perceived or actual threat the parasympathetic recovery system is triggered by perceived or actual safety and so when you breathe in that way for 90 seconds at that 5 to 7 breaths per minute it was noticed that these people that almost most people activate this certain state of higher heart rate variability, which also correlated with people who were who were ill and having symptoms of pain or PTSD or depression. In some cases, anxiety start to report around that time that they felt more calm. They felt their symptoms start to less be in less pain. They felt their symptoms start to subside a little bit, and that was a really powerful and fascinating observation because. That was, of course, not made by us, made by you know very uh, wonderful scientists, uh, uh, amongst which um, are uh, oh, I'm forgetting their first names, but it's Lehrer, Lehrer and 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 Gewertz, who are two of the uh, leaders in this space, who um, and Vashilo as well, who show that there are different rhythms that come from. Then they they took this and then another step further that rhythms from that the body engages in, like seeing things shift at five to seven times per minute can change your breath and your heart rate. 
and just seeing how I'm crossing my legs here by uncrossing my legs at that rhythm and then crossing my legs again will actually do the same thing to shift my heart rate and my breathing into a higher heart rate variability state, just like intentional breath biofeedback. And so I started to see that and I was like, okay, this is starting to get pretty cool because if this is the case and we know that music can create resonance patterns within the heart and lungs, and we know that this other stuff, behaviors can create heart and and sensory stimuli at certain frequencies can create uh, these respiratory resonant cardio what we call like cardio respiratory resonance or coherence patterns between the heart and lungs where they're functioning optimally to favor recovery then can we do it through touch and there were a couple early studies that showed that it was possible uh, very small studies and then we started to basically uh, my my partner and I in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh started to play around with the these vibration patterns and layer them in a very specific way to create rhythms that remind the body of the rhythm, that ideal five to seven breaths per minute rhythm that induces these recovery states in biofeedback. And we didn't know that it was going to work. We just based it on the theory that if every, again, if everything else, we did our homework, right? If everyone else has shown what they've shown and we get our theory right, then there's a really good chance it's going to work. And we played around with tons of vibration frequencies and a bunch of them made us feel like shit. And then finally, we got one, which is now the clear and focused frequency in the app uh, that we put on our bodies. And it was the first one that made us take a deep breath. And it was like that aha moment, you know, like you felt it and we were on our chests and we were like, huh, that's nice. And I feel clearer and calmer at the same time, but also focused, not, not sleepy. And we were like, wow, this is really interesting. So then we took that and then made a few variations on it and played around and just tested on all of our friends and colleagues. Most people experienced the same thing without telling them what it was supposed to do. They experienced the same thing. And then my wife, Catherine, uh, ended up, because we needed some help on the business front, getting some money from the university to do studies. And, um, and we had very little limited resources at this time to do this work. And I asked Catherine to come in and help us raise some money from the University Innovation Institute. And she came in and um, and she said, oh, I can help you with a pitch deck because I didn't even know what a pitch deck was back then. And this is, you know, 2016. And we raised some money and we ran a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover study with 38 healthy people where we found that without a doubt, people who experienced these very specific frequency patterns layered in the way that we found in the lab could not only reliably get their heart rate variability increased under stress, statistically significantly increased under stress, which for those who don't know, HRV, heart rate variability, never goes up under stress. It just doesn't. That's that's the opposite of what we normally see. So to see that reliably was really interesting. But then we also saw that it went up proportionate to cognitive performance increases. So the more that your HRV went up with the Apollo vibrations, the better you did on the stress task in just three minutes in a controlled laboratory setting. And up to 25% better in cognitive performance for wow. that matter, which That's is like the crazy. effect you get from an amphetamine. But without wow. an amphetamine, wow. and we were like, okay, this is pretty pretty darn cool. Never, rarely get results like this in research. And that's why we did a double-line randomized placebo-controlled crossover study because we really wanted to understand, is this effect real or is it placebo? Compared to placebo and compared to uh, no vibration, it was very clear to us that this was a real effect. And then we, after that, when that study was done, it wrapped in about in 2018, 
And we were able to then understand that there were certain patterns that were better for certain things. And, uh, but we only had the opportunity to intensively, rigorously test two patterns. And that was the meditation and mindfulness and the clear and focused. So then the question was, well, what else can we do, <laughs> right? What else could these frequencies do to help people? So we took 16 of the patterns and we put them into an app that was a prototype app that I believe we showed you in the early days with the very rudimentary prototype that looked like a pod on a string, you know, kind of thing. And we gave that out to about 2,000 people over a course of uh, 18 months. And we found over that time that people were using this for things that we never anticipated them using it for. The two main ones that really shocked us were sleep, because we knew that one of the patterns made people tired, but we didn't know it would actually put them to bed and decrease the amount of time it took them to fall asleep or impact their sleep scores in any way, which we've now found that it does. And we and the social one, the one for social and open, which also people started using for creative work. And multiple people were coming back to us saying, this is changing, my, changing the game for me with, with group exercises at work, having to do creative brainstorming and, and group work, and also socializing and being able to present publicly and just feel present and calm in these social situations that would normally make me feel like shit. And we were like, oh, wow, this is cool. We're like, not only are we seeing similar results to what we're seeing in the lab, which almost never happens, but we're seeing additional learnings from the community that are teaching us about what this is, what people will use this for and then that you know and i can't emphasize the importance enough of of real diligent experimentation because without that we would have never known that apollo could be used for all of these different things and what's so interesting is we thought it was going to be used for cognitive performance right and it is but people more more of our customers use it for sleep than for anything else and we didn't even know that it could do that wow right so experiment wow. guys <laughs> that's so wild man it's amazing wow how cool i love the i love innovations like this i mean i'm just a geek and i just <laughs> love life hacks you know what i mean it's like especially when you've had kind of a crappy life for a long period of time like many people have um and you just start feeling better and better and discovering more things it's sort of just keeps feeding, at least for me, feeding my curiosity. Well, if that's possible, what's next? You know, so it's it's a very, very cool innovation. I also want to remind people, actually, I haven't told them, so it's not a reminder. I want to let people know uh, right now, if you guys want to check out the Apollo that we're talking about, uh, you can go to, what's the website? ApolloNeuro.com. ApolloNeuro.com. And uh, Dave and his team have been cool enough to give us a discount of 15%. If you use the code LukeStory15, ApolloNeuro.com, LukeStory15. Thank you for that, by the way. And, and our pleasure. And ApolloNeuroscience.com will also work for anyone who... Okay, cool. Has it's always good to get every URL. I learned that early on. Like, get anything remotely close to what you do. Great tip for budding entrepreneurs out there. Um, and I, I just want to add, if you don't yeah. mind, to what I said earlier, uh -huh. just so people really understand what this is, that Apollo is music. It is music. See, I'm glad you said that because I forgot that you told me that before. And I just thought Apollo is some vibrating frequencies. Well, the problem is that we, our association with vibration in our society is notifications, right? It's notifications from your phone. It's oh, notifications from right. your Apple Watch or your, or your Fitbit. Notifications are actually kind of stimulating and have the capacity to be quite annoying. And That's so why I don't have any on ever. Right. And lots of people I know are the same. And I always, I could try to keep all my notifications off too. And cause it, cause it actually is 
alerting, which stim- which increases heart rate, right? And so when we when we did this, part of the reason why we chose the this we chose vibration was because we could create it with sound. And if you make that sound into certain pat rhythms that are soothing, then it ha- it, it amplifies the impact for the individual because it's not a punchy notification that's you know trying to get your attention. We don't want your attention. Apollo does not want your attention. Apollo is meant to run passively in the background to allow us to be more present on whatever it is that the task is at hand, right? It's supposed to free up cognitive resources, not attract them to the device, right? Right, which is why... It's in, like having a background track on your when you're walking on stage or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think you have in... At one point, I was looking at the FAQ or the instructions for it. And when I get anything, I'm just like, if there's a, a dial between 0% and 100, I'm just like, 100, yeah. you know what I mean? It's kind of how I do things. I don't recommend it. But um, then I actually read the instructions and I, I think it was recommended that you sort of titrate and that there were even preferred settings in terms of the level of intensity. And it's, I don't know, maybe 30% or something. Or it's, it's really personal, right? Okay. So that's the most personal part of Apollo, particularly right now. And we're working constantly in terms of the new innovations to increase, continually increase the personalization of the experience. But right now, the intensity level is based on your environment and your personal sensitivity. And what we always recommend is if the goal is to free up cognitive resources, then we don't want you distracted by the Apollo. The Apollo should just kind of fade into the background and you should be able to pay attention to it and notice it's there when you pay attention, choose to pay attention to it intentionally. But if you're paying attention to something else, if you're working, if you're driving, if you're talking to friends, it shouldn't be noticeable. Or trying to sleep. Or trying to sleep, especially, I, right? I've had that happen when I I, I crank the sleep setting oh, yeah. up and then I sleep like with my hand under the pillow and I'm like, what? who's moving? What is that? And I'm like, oh, God damn it. I got to turn this down. But yeah, I find... I'm, I usually am around 30% pow- Me too. power, you know, yeah. that's kind of where, yeah, like you said, if I had to think about it, is it like, I think mine is off now. So if I had to think about it, cause it's been two hours, um, if I have to think about it, then that means I'm probably on a good setting where I can notice if it's on or off, but it's not distracting anyway. Right. You know, I'm like, I'm not driving and going like, wow, my right hand's really buzzing. You right. Know? Yeah. I think that's a super, a, a, a great aspect of it because some people are going to be more tuned in than others and like you said also depending on what's going on in the environment um ambiance right like if i'm at a loud event or something i might have it cranked up a little more because there's so much stimuli that i wouldn't notice it right. if it was or if you're on a plane yeah there's lots of noise around i you. like it on the plane oh, what's the, the relax plane. one i don't know if relax and unwind yeah i love that love one on flights on i do anything i can on the planes to just be as calm as possible and just meditate and just zone out otherwise especially now with like all the mask I know freaking people yelling at you constantly as if flying wasn't stressful yeah. enough. <laughs> it's like it's like what they've done now is the the TSA people that yell at you it's almost like they've turned their many of their flight attendants into additional TSA <laughs> dominant freaks. Yeah, it's crazy. Although I did take a trip to Indiana recently on Delta who are one of the most covidy airlines um according to media and they were actually very relaxed. Yeah, I thought Delta was nice. That's why I flew here. Yeah, they kind of you know, didn't really say much if you were loose with your mask um, use and stuff. So 
kudos to Delta. Way to relax a little bit. I feel a little bad for the for the staff personally. Oh, I mean, dude. It's, like, it's so hard right now. To, oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Like, we don't like wearing masks even for, like, the duration of the flight. They have to wear it all day. I honestly, I mean, it, it would be really tragic to be in a career that you enjoy, that you want to stay in and have that um, be present. And I know anywhere I go, I mean, anytime people come to my house to do work or something and they have the courtesy of wearing a mask, the first thing I say is like, hey, do what makes you feel comfortable. But like, there's no need for that. And most of the time, I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, it's the air conditioning guy or, you know, right. whatever. We're renovating a house right now. So there's a lot of people coming and going. And I think in Texas, people generally follow the protocol less. And uh, the <laughs> cases would indicate that that's a successful um protocol but yeah i'm always like god i feel so bad dude especially when it's hot i know right and right. just the the just the need to breathe air man that, yep. that's the part of it for me aside from all the sort of conditioning and shaming elements of covering your face but just like geez the breath well let's hope that we can get back to a full full face exposed society soon, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah so i never say i'm anti-mask i say i'm pro-face yeah you know taking after mother Teresa. Um, so God, I feel like I had a million questions. We're already like an hour and 48 minutes. No so, way. Yeah. So that, that's always a good sign though. Yeah. When it's been almost two hours and I'm like, I'm still ready to go another two. That's a, that's a good conversation. So for those still listening to us at this point, thank you for being diehard. And I hope this episode has been, um, yeah, supportive. Um, cause I want to talk about psychedelics and all this other stuff. I think I even put that on my Instagram live announcement cause I just figured we'd talk about that. Um, but in terms of, I don't know, maybe we have really sort of covered, I was going to go into this through, uh, you know, a linear process of let's talk about stress and anxiety because so many people are under stress right now, Dave. Uh, but I think we've kind of really covered that. So maybe we could just in the we got last, a lot. yeah, yeah, we have, I hope so. And that amount of time, uh, maybe we could, uh, you know, we don't have time to delve into the therapeutic use of plant medicines and psychedelics and things like that. Although we did a bit more on the past episode. Um, what's, what's happening right now in terms of, um, uh, legislation and developments. I was listening to the, uh, the third wave podcast the other day and someone was on there who's in Vancouver, who's I think begun, if not about to begin, uh, IV DMT therapy. And mm -hmm. I was like, now that's something I would like to sign up for. Um, I think so, that's within a study. Oh, okay. The study phase. Okay. Yeah. So w where do you see things going in terms of uh, legislation, criminality? Uh, is ketamine the only thing that therapists can use right now? How close are we to MDMA or psilocybin or LSD or any of these other compounds in terms of in the United States being able to go see a professional and get treated in that way? Those are all great questions. Think, 50 of them. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, I think I can get, get through them. Uh, so ketamine is the only legal psychedelic currently available in the U.S. It is slightly more restricted in Canada, unfortunately, because of misuse. But there's a lot that we can learn about ketamine or from ketamine and the way that it has been used and misused, I think, that is really important to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, on, at this point, ketamine is is very useful, especially for depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, when combined with psychotherapy, it can actually seemingly induce pretty long-lasting effects. When used by itself in high doses, more frequent doses without psychotherapy, the effects tend to not be long-lasting and people are at higher risk of side effects like bladder toxicity, 
um, as one of the more common side effects, which isn't common, but when people are getting repeated high doses multiple times a week for months on end or longer, that these side effects do tend to surface. And we have been seeing more of it. Tim Ferriss was just talking about this a month ago, I think, on his show. And it and it shouldn't be ignored. And I think that there, you know, it, it is exciting to think about the future where, you know, as of 2023 with the studies going on, there are lots of great studies going on right now of other psychedelic medicines, most notably psilocybin for depression and MDMA for treatment resistant or for PTSD by MAPS um, are going on currently. And it looks like those medicines will be available for prescription in office use as of 2023, which is very exciting. Wow. Um, That's so cool. Very exciting. That being said, even though things in general seem to be moving in a, in a, direction that is increasing accessibility of these medicines to patients and clients who are looking for healing, there is an important lesson to learn right now from ketamine, which is that 80 to 90% of people who administer ketamine are administering it without psychotherapy. There's no psychotherapy required. It's not part of the treatment protocol. In a lot of cases, most cases, it's not even recommended. And again, this increases the amount of t- of sessions that people require it requires them to come back more often so there's a financial incentive sometimes for the providers to do that kind of work um and unfortunately and many of them aren't psychiatrists or therapists anyway so they're not even necessarily familiar with or concerned at all with the therapy side even though it is extremely effective and the problem with that is is that more side effects are coming becoming apparent and what happens when more side effects become apparent? Well, it attracts the eyes of the DEA, the FDA, um, and the DEA, unfortunately, now has been evaluating IV and intramuscular ketamine to reschedule as Schedule Two. Oh, no. Which is horrible because, you know, we were really on a, real, a positive... Ketamine was Schedule Three before, which, for those who don't know, means that it can be prescribed... Uh, much more easily and be much more accessible and doesn't have to be rigorously tracked in the same way that, for example, opiate and methamphetamine prescriptions are, um, like Adderall. Uh, But now, because so many people are, you know, for one, there aren't standardized guidelines for ketamine like there are for MDMA that MAPS has put forward to the FDA. Um, There desperately need to be. I'm working with some folks on putting, and physicians uh, in this specific area to put out guidelines about how to, you know, what best practices are basically for ketamine therapy. But to this day, they really, there hasn't been a consensus on those best practices. And there haven't been any major medical boards that have come forward and say, this is what is recommended for how to use this medicine and anything else could potentially be considered negligible care, you know, or or a negligent care. And so people use it however they want. And people get sent home with prescriptions that are abused and then they wind up with toxicity and again the government turns an eye and is like hey well if you, if this is how it's being used and this is the problems that we're seeing arise wow maybe we need to change the legislation and the fact that that uh, is what's on their on their minds rather than descheduling cannabis is really problematic right like we really need these people who are at the DEA to be thinking as much as possible about the strategy for descheduling cannabis so that cannabis can go from schedule 1 to schedule 3 and can become more accessible and prescribed freely by doctors and be used in research studies and instead 
we're distracting these people. I miss using ketamine. Oh, man. Right? And so this sends a really important message to the community, which is we can still fuck this up, guys. Like, the government is not sold yet on this. Even though these medicines are extremely powerful and do have great potential benefit, they also every powerful thing, every powerful tool, right? Like what did Stan Lee say? With great power comes great responsibility. And we must accept that responsibility and not misuse the tools that we are given. These tools and the ability to use them is a great privilege. And we need to always remember that. Wow, wow. Um, I can't imagine how someone would do ketamine recreationally. <laughs> I've always, I've always Me tripped either. out on that. Like that one time I kind of pushed the threshold and from people that are more familiar with that substance than I, they're like, oh dude, you were in a K-hole. I'm like, how could you be at a rave or something? I, I mean, I know. oh my God, there was no moving, getting up, like talking, dancing, not, not on the agenda at all. It's very strange to me, but I guess uh, to each their own. And I was someone who did just every drug imaginable uh, in copious amounts. And um, I don't know, it's like either I've changed or I just don't like that drug, you know, in, in that context. Um, and- well, I think you've, you've gone through your own healing process that is really important to acknowledge, right? There's a very different way of you of in the sort of the role of intention in medicine use, right? The same medicine can be used, can be abused and used for the intention of escape, which then leads us right back to where we were at the beginning because mm-hmm. there there is no escape. And we're here <laughs> and we might as well embrace it, right? Yeah. And so, the and, shadow will find you. Yeah. It's you always can run, there. but it's gonna it's gonna follow you wherever you go. Right. And and so, you know, you are you've now transitioned your approach to medicine from a very in, a very uh focused intention of engagement, right? And engagement is the opposite of escape. Engagement is like, all right, life, I'm here, right? I know that anything that comes up is just me and I'm using this medicine as a way to grow. And I'm using it intentionally with growth in mind, not with numbing myself and escaping from my problems. Yeah, yeah, right? for sure, for sure. Yeah, huge, huge distinction. And I guess that's the sort of paradox of being a recovering addict and alcoholic. I mean, and as we were talking about before, when I was on uh, Aubrey Marcus's show last time, there were a number of people that commented on Instagram, like, this dude calls himself sober. He's a fraud or whatever it was. You know, I'm like... Uh, there's a difference, you know, for, for me, I've had to redefine and it, it, it is based on not only intention, but also results, right? Like by their fruits, you shall know them. So I look at my life and say, wow, I've really done a lot of journeying over the past three years. Am I okay? Back to that inquiry and every metric of inner and external success is improving, right? You know, which I know based on my past with drug abuse if I'm like uh, off the wagon, nothing is improving. It is degrading rapidly right. to the point of absolute despair and abject failure in every department of life. Right. I'm not even exaggerating. You that's, know? What so that's what can happen. It's so, it's so interesting. So I guess it's, it's hard for me to kind of go back in time to a place where life is so uncomfortable and painful that I'm just grabbing for anything to check out. Maybe at 25 years old, ketamine would have been great for me to numb myself and forget about my problems. Um, I, I think on the intentional side of it with all these medicines, and I'm sure you could speak to this at depth, uh, 
I don't know, once you're at a certain place in life to use any sort of psychedelics or plant medicines to try to escape your problems is a horrible idea. <laughs> yeah. all, all that's probably going to show up is said problems, you know? Um, yeah, because when you, when you come back <laughs> from that brief ride and you come back to your normal, you know, sober consciousness and the, the, yeah. the medicines have worn off, you're like, oh shit, those problems are still here. Right? Yeah. And they also, haven't got away. And, and, and my point really is like during the experience, they the th- come up. The too. things that you likely are trying to evade are going to come up and be right in front of your face in technicolor, high definition. And that can be a really, um, you know, uncomfortable experience. For sure. So I know, you know, the classical bad trip, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that used to happen to me, I think, um, more often than I realized at the time, having taken 22 years to bookmark any sort of psychedelic experience when I came back to it. I was like, this is amazing. This isn't what it was like when I used to drop acid and go see the Grateful Dead and then be stuck in the parking lot. Our ride left and we're all drunk and on acid and no one has any money and we're trading weed for a burrito. <laughs> you know, like just, <laughs> just things would go terribly awry, you know, yeah. uh, because the intention was to, to have fun and escape, you know, this reality because it was so painful. Right. Um, so it looks like there's some good things on the horizon in terms of, legitimate therapeutic use for some of these substances and also a double-edged sword there and that too loosey-goosey then it starts to get the authorities fired up and that could ruin the whole thing for us um other than mdma and psilocybin are, are there any other things brewing in the in the community such as i mentioned this this one person doing some research um with iv dmt i mean there's so many different molecules that are mescaline i mean all kinds of things that could be potentially useful yeah there any others that are kind of percolating around there's so many right i think there's there's iboga ibogaine which has been used for opiate addiction uh probably more so used for opiate opioid addiction than anything else and shown great success um there are the there are there is the iv dmt situation which was started originally by rick strassman but it was oh really you remember, you remember rick strassman yeah the spirit yeah. molecule yeah yeah um, that joe rogan produced so yeah really you know really i think i was supposed to interview him at some point oh maybe yeah yeah wow thanks rick's, for the reminder rick's great you should definitely yeah yeah he's a, he's a he seems like a i've never i've never actually i've only interacted with him via social but he's a, a social media but he's a really nice guy and he's a great scientist and what was so interesting and groundbreaking about his work was that he was the first person to ever administer IV DMT to any human being in a clinical trial and he did it at the University of New Mexico with one caveat which was that these people had already experienced they were experienced psychedelic users Got it. And when you watch the movie and you see these people interviewed, it's very clear that they're experienced psychedelic users. Yeah, there's some cosmonauts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and it's not a bad thing. It's just that, you know, people have different reactions to something an experience that intense when they're experienced and they're familiar with the territory than when they're not experienced and unfamiliar with territory. Mm -hmm. Right. Just go back to what we were talking about before. When you're unfamiliar with that kind of situation, your amygdala goes off just that much more, right? So this more recent study that Paul Austin was talking about, I think, which is going on at UBC, I think, University of British Columbia. Mm, sounds right. Yeah. I believe so. Um, I, could, I could be, forgive me if I mess that up, but it, that is going on. The IV DMT experiment is the first time that DMT has been administered in this way on an extended IV drip basis to people who are naive and unexperienced. Oh, really? Wow. So that's a particularly interesting study. And 
I don't know what's going to come from it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it will be fascinating as long as they're recording the right outcome measures, but it's a really right. interesting uh, it's a really interesting experiment to do. I think that one intrigued me just because I love tryptamines. I mean, that's just my zone. <laughs> you know? But 5-MeO DMT is super intense. Yeah. It's, it's like anytime I do it, as I start to kind of reemerge as, I don't want to get too esoteric there, but you know, there's a moment where you're not there as right. who you think you are to be in your personality, ego, intellect, et cetera. Just all that emerges with consciousness. But as I start to emerge almost every time, it's been six times now that I've done that, the first thought is like, everyone needs to do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then my you know, prudence kind of arrives back in my awareness again. I go, well, maybe not everyone, but you know, I start thinking of all my loved ones and like how freeing it could be for them. And it's, it's like the cure for atheism, you know, or even someone who believes in God, but doesn't really trust in God. That's what the thing that I come out of it every time with yet in a more sober analysis, I mean, it could be potentially harmful to someone to go to that length if they don't have any context and, and support. Right. I know a lot of people, um, are serving these very powerful medicines without any real intake or right. after integration and things like that, which could be could be terrifying. But to the point of the IV DMT, what intrigued me about that was the ability to throttle the medicine. You know, that's the thing with so many of these more powerful psychedelics. I mean, you go drink a couple cups of ayahuasca, there's no eject button. You know what I mean? You can't just be like, mm, right. abort mission. Right. I actually tried that once on 5 of me and it didn't work. I tried, actually, I said that in the middle. I was like, abort, abort. mission. <laughs> yeah, I tried to come out of it and it was like, oh my God, no, I'm total. I'm in like four dreams within other dreams. You know, it was just insane. But uh, there's no stopping it or like, whoa, this is too much. You know, if there's resistance and things like that. So I think that's what's really interesting about therapeutically induced states like that where you have a space holder and someone just medically titrating the dose i mean because there's i th i would think a, a pretty sweet spot in the dmt experience for most people if if they had the right support and the right intention but sometimes the big blast off can be extremely jarring and um, not in the case of 5-meo dmt or What's the other one? NMDMT? NNDMT. NNDMT. Uh, shorter duration, super intense experience. But man, if you're thinking about ayahuasca or LSD, I mean, you're talking about, or even it's psilocybin. A it's a real commitment. You're talking about right? many hours of what could yeah. potentially be deep yeah, work. Yeah, 12 hours. Yeah. yeah. So not a short amount. So, of time. And, it, and it seems like eternity just to a lot of people because, yeah. you know, you're... You, you're in an altered state of consciousness where time, your perception of time itself is shifted, right? Yeah, good point. So I, I, that one I found to be really intriguing yeah. for that reason, that one could throttle the administration and, and find a place in which they can do some work and, and feel safe, back to your right. point of feeling safe, right? Like if, if you did get to the point like, ooh, I'm at my edge, I'm at my edge, make it stop, within a few minutes, you're back to your everyday self. And I'll, and I'll take it one step further in terms of why that study is interesting is because the Western pharmaceutical model in terms of the way that big pharma develops drugs and the way that, forgetting actually about big pharma entirely for a second, the way that the FDA and most of the FDA-like organizations in, in most first world countries approve of drugs getting through is that they're single molecule interventions. 
right? And so the whole idea of whole plant medicine getting through the FDA is a little bit strange to them, not to us, but to them because they are worried about all the different entourage effects and combination effects and they want to know what each part of the medicine is going to do right, cannabis right. has like 200 components plus right. right so they're they're concerned that you could you know induce toxicity by having a little too much of component a versus component c and blah 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 and theoretically it's possible but you know with medicines like cannabis it's thankfully known to be very unlikely to induce any kind of toxicity if you get the dosing relatively right we have some basic guidelines on that from studies high cbd low thc right it tends to be fairly safe um as one example but with dmt dmt is a single molecule intervention right iv dmt is a uh, an intervention that you could theoretically because it's a single molecule if proven to be safe in non-experienced users non-psychedelic experienced users it could be like ketamine because it's it's because DMT can't be patented, right? It's a natural occurring molecule in all of our brains and most living things. That it could become quickly one of the next treatments for things like suicidality or um, depression or certain anxiety disorders because it is of a form delivered in the IV way that. The F, that the FDA and other bodies may be more amenable to allowing it through more easily. Whereas something like whole psilocybin mushrooms, right? Like when you start to get into the whole mushroom complex, it gets a lot more, <laughs> yeah. a lot crazier because then you yeah. have like, well, is it a Hawaiian mushroom or is it a golden teacher mushroom? Or like what strain and breed is it? And then what else is in there? And how much of an effect are those other things having? And the FDA is just, and most governments are just not comfortable in any way with whole plant medicine, at least the federal gut level yeah, governments are, yeah. whereas you know certain individual states and cities might allow growth of these plant medicines and um, and decriminalize them, which I think is a big step in the right direction. People still need the education around these things, other not not just abstinence only education, but you know because people are going to use drugs, guys, like, <laughs> just like sex. Like people are gonna fuck. Yeah. We can't. We can't. If we tell them not to, they're more likely to do it. If we don't tell them how to do it, they're more likely to do it unsafely. So the best thing we could do is take a lesson from, you know, the Amsterdam book, for instance, and say, all right, let's give people at least the bare minimum education on how to use a, a certain kind of mushroom safely. People are going to do it anyway, right? How yeah. to use these things safely can actually avoid a lot of harm and damage, and potentially allow people to do some of that self-work on their own that right now they're depending on the medical system for and it's very clear that the medical system can't support them so yeah. you have enough resources yeah so there i think there's a lot of as as much change and and interesting stuff that's happening on both sides of the equation right now there is a lot to be excited for and that excitement should come with a healthy level of caution. Yeah, um, yeah. And and make sure that, you know, when we think about how to use a medicine, it's really about showing, it's really about respecting ourselves that we put in the work, whether you're a doctor or not, that you put in the work to figure out how that medicine works and how to use it safely. Can't emphasize that enough. If you disrespect yourself and disrespect the medicine by not putting in that intentional time to prepare, you will dramatically increase your risk of having ill effect 
And that ill effect could last a day. It could last years. And we see this. These are my patients, right? Like I see this happen. So I can't caution people enough that this is very exciting, but do your own homework and do your own self-work to prepare yourself, you know, before you you venture into these situations. And and please, please, please try to find someone who is more knowledgeable than you, um, who can at least help guide you at about how to use these things safely. Yeah, yeah. Get a pilot. Don't try to fly the plane yourself. Right. That's interesting around the regulatory agencies and their reluctance to work with things in their whole form. You know, and it's. It, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because the authoritative nature of these agencies is control, right? And you can't control a peyote button and its numerous alkaloids, right. but you could, you could um, synthesize mescaline, right? And then now that's a, I don't know if mescaline is a single molecule, but it is. Okay, yeah. so you could have that. Um, you could synthesize five meo DMT, NN DMT, etc. So these are single molecules and give them more controllability, predictability. Yeah, predictability. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, you mentioned Amsterdam, and it seems like every time I turn around, there is another clinic outside of the U.S. who's offering all of the different medicines, you know, in different countries, depending on on the legality of them. Is that not another kind of double-edged sword, right? Where it's great if you you go, okay, I'm going to fly to Costa Rica or Mexico or Amsterdam or wherever, and, and sit in a shamanic ceremony or see. Um, uh, a clinician to administer this medicine. I mean, what an amazing opportunity, right? You just got to get out of the U.S. borders and you can kind of be home free, so to speak. Um, what do you perceive in terms of kind of the benefit detriment analysis of that? Is it, you know, a Wild West situation where you're going to have just a bunch of inappropriate uses of these medicines in Costa Rica or Mexico or something like that? Probably it will be a mix, right? You will probably. I, I think we, you, you would, you could only expect that while some people will be doing best practices, that other people will not, and they'll be make, taking shortcuts, right? And but I think when I was referring to Amsterdam as an, as a partial example, it was about how they actually educate their people on drugs, right? Rather than saying just don't, just don't do it. Yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to is empowering each other and ourselves with knowledge. This stuff is known, right? It's not not known. <laughs> like it's known. Like anybody can go on Amazon or go to your local bookstore um, and order uh, PCAL, right? Or order TCAL, which are Sasha and Ann Shulgin's books that have been around for I don't know, 30, 20, 30 years, maybe more, that talk about in ex- extraordinary, lovely detail this incredible couples experiences synthesizing and testing with themselves and their friends like a hundred hundreds of different psychedelic substances right and there's a narrative part of those stories and then there's also the individual like experiments right part of those stories and that is such an amazing source of knowledge that is so helpful just to like get your feet wet and understand how powerful these tools really are and that dosage matters, right? Like dosage is more important than anything else. That's why if you somebody passes you uh, uh, some white powder, make sure you know exactly what that is, right? Yeah. Like white powder could be anything, especially yeah. in this day and age. It could have been 
prepared on a table that previously had fentanyl on it. And even just a few micrograms of fentanyl, if you are not opioid tolerant, can literally stop you from breathing. And I know people who this has happened to. Wow. I mean, this is so important to you know this level of education. It's like, if we tell people just don't do it, right? We already know that people will do what you tell them not to do, right? If you, do, if you empower them with the knowledge and, and explain to them why they shouldn't do certain things, but maybe how to safely do other things and how to decipher between what is safe and what is not safe, then you give people the autonomy to make better decisions on their own. And that is a sustainable outcome. Right, that allows people to then pass that knowledge on to other people. It's empowering. If you hide or 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 uh, prevent people from accessing the knowledge, then they perpetuate ignorance—not stupidity, but ignorance, meaning they're ignoring of the facts. They're ignoring of the information that's available to help guide them. Right. So, if we encourage a society of mentorship, of apprenticeship, of knowledge dissemination, this is why we created the psychedelic clubhouse. Right. This is why we created. The psychedelic news hour was because we saw that Clubhouse had this incredible community and people were talking about psychedelics and no one knew what they were talking about. And we were like, there's no doctors talking about this stuff. There's no one who actually practices with psychedelic medicine on social media who uses these medicines in a clinical setting, who has the authority of like a physician or an expert psychotherapist who could come on here and actually talk about how they work, what the latest evidence is, and and empower people with knowledge that they can empower others with. And so that was really, you know, the, the, that, that part of, of, uh, of, of empowerment and educating our communities was, is something that has been forgotten about in a lot of medicine, unfortunately. It's been forgotten about in a lot of other fields too. And that was a huge part of, motivated us to basically create that resource for people so that they too could understand it the way we understand it. Maybe not completely as well, but I think we could get people pretty close. Yeah. And if we can do yeah. that, then you know that knowledge will spread. And it and it and it has. And and we see it because people are starting to educate other people now in a similar way. Oh, it's so really good. great. Well in the absence of um, indigenous shamanic lineage, that's all we've got, right? And I mean, in the absence of elders, right? We don't really yeah, have elders yeah. anymore in our society. Yeah. And and our elders that would have been taking acid at Woodstock probably had a much different experience than what we're going for in terms of a therapeutic effect. But uh, yeah, shout out to your clubhouse show, the psychedelic oh, news hour. How often does that come out? Every Friday, every Friday, what every time? Friday at uh, 1130 Pacific okay, to cool. 1 PM Pacific. We just interviewed Paul Stamets last week. Oh, which was nice. Amazing. Nice. Um, I have to look up who we're interviewing this week. Cool. But cool. Well, this won't be out by the time that it airs oh, yeah. anyway, but I want to send people to that. I know a lot of people use Clubhouse a lot. You know uh, Ta and Cole? Yeah. Here in town? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, And they're part of the psychedelic oh, okay, uh, Clubhouse okay. as well. Because Cole's on, she taught me how to use it and then I forgot. Oh. But she's on there all the time. She's, she's like, great. Clubhouse is the best thing ever, you know, so. She's yeah. a great educator. Perfect example yeah. of somebody who empowers people with knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. For really sure. admirable work. Yeah, I agree. Well, dude, I think we covered it. Oh, no, we didn't. I wanted to ask you one more about one more molecule uh, because you mentioned that book, Pical. And in that book, he, I think, states that uh, 2CB was his favorite in that group of whatever it Fentyl is. Phenylethylamines. Yeah. yeah. And he just, he's like, that's my shit. 
Uh, a couple of years back, a friend of mine who was working with a chemist doing a lot of creative things um, had a big bag of uh, 2CB truffles. And, he, and at one point he was kind of a provider and he's moving out of the provider space. So he said, I have a big bag of these if you want to buy them. It's amazing. And it's sort of like MDMA, but without the hangover. And I was like, wow, that sounds great. Cause I really don't like MDMA because of the speediness of it. Mm -hmm. He said, it's also more psychedelic. So I just bought a whole bag of 2CB. This was of course in another country uh, when this happened, not in the United States, but anyway, um, they've been in my freezer for a couple of years now. And I've just one night I had a little like a half of one, I think it's 18 milligrams. And uh, uh, someone else I was with who will remain anonymous did maybe a quarter of one. And it took forever to come on. Uh, and it was done kind of in a bonding ceremonial way, I guess you could say. Um, just an intimacy practice kind of thing. Did you uh, do it fasting? I don't know. That's probably why it took longer. To yeah, come but it took forever. And I was kind of like, I don't know, should I take more? But I know better. That's not what you do with psychedelics, usually. Especially 2CB. Yeah, just wait. And I waited. And then it's like, oh, okay, something's happening. But it was kind of late. And I was kind of like, well, I don't really want this to happen now. So I did, didn't get a true sense of it. But um, people that are very knowledgeable about these things, that's like, you know, something people uh, revere, it seems. So do you have any experience with working with that? Or do you see that as being another molecule that can be isolated and have some therapeutic value? I don't have experience working with 2CB because it just wasn't available yeah. like in a it wasn't available in a legal setting for me to work with um i know lots of people who have used it um i know lots of people have had great experiences with it and i think that it is one of the it's it's one of several molecules in the it, as you if anybody who looks up pcal highly recommended um because it talks about how this is one molecule of a family of phenethylamines, which is the 2C family. And there's a bunch of them. There's 2CE, there's 2C, uh, 2CB, uh, I think 2CI. Um, and, th and they're all slightly different in their effect. I remember that family stands out to me because 2CE was one of Alex Sasha Shulgin's most miserable experiences. And he did it twice. And, oh, wow. And just felt like he was like, I remember something like he was like stuck in quicksand. Oh, it was God. really, really interesting, um, his, his account of that. But, but 2CB is, has been talked about and touted as one of the much more pleasant and therapeutic experiences for people. It's very gentle. And so I think it's always stood out as something that we as clinicians would be excited to work with um, but there just haven't been that many studies of it. If, if any, I don't, I don't think there's been any, you know, real human studies that have been of any significant size on 2CB. Um, but one thing that I will, I will say about 2CB, which is something very important I learned, maybe the most important part of it that I learned from Sash Shulgin is um, that it is one of those molecules that has what we call a very narrow dose response window, which means that that your your or or and it's also thought of as like the therapeutic window which is the when you start to feel the effects the pleasant effects to when those pleasant effects turn into unpleasant effects and the it, it, it's a very narrow window it's something between i think it was something like and un, unusually so for other psychedelics compared to other psychedelics it was like if you take 16 milligrams or something like that is when you i'm, I'm not going to get this exactly right but it was something like 14 to 16 milligrams is when you start to feel feel the the pleasant effects of it and then around 20 milligrams 
is when you peak the pleasant effects. And if he went to like 21 or 22 and felt like total garbage. And oh, it made him, it, it was like, it, it was the, ju- this is again, going back to why dosing is so critical in understanding how these molecules interact with us, which is called the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and how what is going on in your body, like food, for instance, can impact the way the medicine comes on um, and the timing and how long it lasts. And and so 2CB is one of those ones that he warned, that, that Shulgin warned, you really have to be careful with the dosing because if you take too slight, even just slightly too much, you can really ruin your day and the wow. days of other people that you might be sharing it with. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen a bit of that research, you know, just kind of feeling into whether or not I will find it of value. I just haven't had the opportunity to really, you know, have a true experience. I mean, probably because I don't, I don't know like a guide or yeah. shaman or someone who works with that. So it's like, I have it, but I, I'm not trying to be a cowboy uh, yeah. with it. But I have definitely read that they're about that window and that people have horrific experiences when they try to like party with it. So that's a word to the wise. Another thing about it, I think that would be worth mentioning is again, um, not anecdotally, but just based on research is that because it's sort of in the party drug class of MDMA, that there's a lot of shady kind of 2CB products you know on the black yeah that you know it's 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 actually very rare to get the real stuff which is another reason why i just grabbed up a wholesale supply of it but uh my friend that i was speaking to about it um said that it's uh if not just difficult to synthesize the alchemical process of making it is somewhat dangerous you know whatever you have to do just chemically and so that's that's why there's not a lot of it on the market even the black market that is of high quality that's extremely pure and safe so it's it's one of the sketchier ones kind of in the street drug category yeah. that one would want to be very mindful about and 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 that's why uh, apparently that's so rare is it's it's a lot harder to make than mdma or something like that yeah yeah so or crystal meth or something that someone could just put together a little chemistry set and probably nail pretty close uh, but anyway, th- I'm glad I forgot. I'm glad I remember. Or watch Breaking Bad, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. You put a big vat of acid and then you pour. When I was in rehab, and I'll, I'll close on, on this, it's a funny story. Um, I never liked uh, crystal meth, but I still did it. You know what I mean? It was better than being me, even though I, the me that I became on it was even worse. Uh, but when I was in rehab, there was this uh, kind of biker guy in there, and he had been uh, what he called a chef for a motorcycle gang in the Bay Area. And I was asking him, well, how do you make crystal meth? Because he was a cook, you know, he cooked crystal meth. And, and he that said- That kind of chef. Yeah, yeah. He said, Luke, uh, he said, I don't know if it was every or just almost every raw ingredient that you need to make good quality crystal meth has a skull and crossbones poison symbol on the container. It's like, it's literally made out of poison, the whole thing. So imagine how poisonous it is once you put them all together, right? I was like, oh, no wonder I never liked that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst drug. The worst, God, it's just horrible. Well, and, and also just to that point, when you're, when you're using any medicine that's been synthesized in a laboratory that is like an underground lab that you don't know where it's coming from or how it's made and it hasn't been tested, there's always the possibility of contaminants in it, right? And those contaminants have un, unexpected and can have an unexpected effects. Like most... Most MDMA that you buy on the street isn't contaminated with fentanyl, although sometimes it is nowadays, unfortunately, because they're just sharing the same table space that on the you know on the, the on, at the lab or the drug dealers. But it's usually contaminated with meth 
or cocaine. Uh, right. Because it's easier to synthesize, synthesize meth and it's easier to get cocaine oftentimes or bad cocaine than it is to get MDMA. And so it gets contaminated. And if you, if somebody's not doing a good extract, like there, there's, there's two parts of the process, right? There's the process of actually synthesizing the active ingredient like the MDMA or the, or the methamphetamine, which is a therapeutic ingredient that you're looking for from a, from a biochemical, you know, organic chemistry perspective, even in the pharmaceutical world, there's the, the same process is, is critical, right? It's the process of getting the core active ingredient you're looking for and then eliminating as much of the, of the solvent and, and, and the contaminants that you have to oh, add right. to the process to get that purified compound. And in a lot of cases, there's, there's still a little bit of residual stuff left in there that is chemical based or benzene based or you know not good for you basically that gets left in because if the drug's going to be sold on the street there's no regulations that says that it has to be completely pure and not have any contaminants in it nobody's checking yeah it's not coming with a pdf (laughs) report i found a company uh, a couple years ago called lift mode and you can get things like um uh, kana extract and just cool like it's kind of psychoactive, but not scheduled things. Yohimbi, you know, just Ayurvedic herbs, whatever. And they do really potent extracts. But what's really cool is when you um, when you are on their site and even when you order it, they send you the lab report mm. testing for metals and mold and any kind of contaminants. I mean, you have to just trust that the report's real. I figure, why would they go through all the trouble? But it comes from a third-party lab. There's a date, the batch number, all of that stuff. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I think that's kind of the way forward for things that are kind of in the gray zone of legality or things that are emerging from illegality to commonplace use is the actual third-party verification that whatever you're taking is what it's supposed to be and that it doesn't have those contaminants. Super important. And there are places you can get your stuff tested, right? Like even if you just happen to have something or somebody gave you something, then, you know, you don't, you, it's not like the testing isn't available. You can order testing kits. I think Dance Safe has resources for testing. Testing oh, yeah. medicine. Yeah, yeah, I've seen Dance Safe is great. Yeah. Um, and there's others. Arrowhead has sources for testing. So test your stuff. You know, if you have yeah. any concerns at all that you know you don't know where this something came from, and especially if it's especially if it's some kind of crystally powder of any sort, you know, oh get that stuff tested. Make sure yeah. that you can be because comp- because that adds an element of of. of of a lack of safety, right? Like if you're entering into an experience that you would consider to be a sacred experience for healing, and then you're not sure that your medicine is safe, then there's part of you that's not going to feel safe in that experience. You're going to, you might feel poisoned, right? And you may, and and you can manifest that with your own mind, you know, to the, to the point that, you know, we manifest a lot of our own experiences. And to the point you made earlier, when you were saying, I want to abort from my five yeah. MBO DMT yeah. experience. I've never heard of anybody aborting successfully from one of those experiences. Yeah. No, but it didn't work. But I have known people, my patients in particular, I've had multiple patients who are very, uh, you know, usually a little bit more on the anxious side, a little more on the ego protective side, um, where they literally, like just te- as testament to the power of the mind, that they will be under the influence of ketamine which is a very, very powerful medicine. Um, and they will be fairly deep into an experience with a fairly high dose, whether it's usually, you know, the cases that are most profound here are the ones where they actually go into a clinic with one of my colleagues and they're doing an infusion or something like that. And then I'll do the therapy with them before and after. And we'll be talking and they'll be like, yeah, you know, I felt uncomfortable. 
And I just was like, I want this to stop. And I shut the entire experience down. And I'm like, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> like for you to be like, do you, do you even know, like, like, do you even know what you just did? Like you change your brains brain and body's ability to interact with a, a chemical with your mind power, right? Talk about mind power. Talk about efficacy and empowerment, right? Even though you might have felt, felt like you've ruined your experience by resisting it, you showed yourself that you have quite a, bit of, quite a bit of power in your mind to be able to control your experience and the outcome. You know That should make you feel pretty good. And so it's interesting how you can work with somebody to help them understand how to get to their goal, even though they may have felt like a failure for not leaning in and getting wow. there on their own. Wow. That's interesting. The mind is such an incredible thing. Yeah. We understand yeah. so little. Yeah, that's wild to to be able to override that. That's unimaginable. And I know Damn. I've known people who've done it with ayahuasca too. Huh. I've known people who've had like two to three sip, two to three drinks and not experienced a thing. Yeah. I've had that happen twice. Yeah, that was very strange. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's a long night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, you know, in Spanish, they have, they have a word for it from South America. It's a nada, you know, right? It's like, you're going to get seemingly nothing. Although I have had profound insights that have come in medicine where I don't subjectively feel anything, right. quotes, you know, and then just laying there going, oh man, how much longer do we have? Mm -hmm. I didn't drink enough and they already put it away, you know, and uh, had one very profound insight in, in such a, an instance, actually it was life-changing. It wasn't a hallucination, a vision or anything. It was just like a thought went boop. You ever thought about this like this? <laughs> yeah. Shit, that's what happened. You know, yep. very interesting. Uh, okay, so um, I want to remind people they can go to apolloneuro.com and use the code LUKESTORY15 if they want to check out the Apollo. Thank you for sharing so much of the details around that. I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a guy that wants to know how things work. Me you too. Know? So thank you for going there into the depths of how it works. Very fascinating stuff. Uh, my final question for you, Dave, is... Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your work that you might share with us? That's a good question. Uh, I would say Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements, which are always do your best. The four agreements that we make with ourselves for a to to uh, for an intentional life, you know, and a life that's aligned with our goals. So, always do your best. Always be true to your word. Don't make expectations and don't take anything personally. Oh, that's what the four agreements are. I've had that book for years and I've never read it. It's yeah, I mean I'm just like, I'll get around to it and I never do. You know. Well now I don't have to read it. Yeah, read it when you read it if you feel like it. It puts it into a very practical standpoint when you read it. Mm -hmm. Um, but those are the four agreements and those are really powerful tools. Uh and I think another who we talked about earlier, another person who's been really inspirational to me is Eric Kandel, who you know, was uh, lived through the Holocaust and escaped to come to uh, from Vienna to come to the U.S. and uh, became one of the foremost neuro, uh, psychiatrists and neuroscientists to who actually won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for discovering how our memory works, basically, and that it's not unique to humans. It actually goes back the mechanism of memory. And the way we form new neurons and neural connections goes back hundreds of millions of years to ancient sea snails that only have 12,000 neurons and we have like 100 billion, 100 billion neurons, right? Wow. So, wow. so these, these 
ideas are not unique to us. Like we may think that consciousness is unique to us. It's not. Consciousness wow. is universal, right? It's much older than we could ever imagine, which is really cool. And uh, such elegant work. And then the other person who uh, has been very inspirational to me lately, who we might have talked about at one time, is, is Rachel Yehuda, who is the director of trauma, the Department of Trauma and, um, and Psychedelic Psychotherapy at Mount Sinai Hospital currently. Um, and she discovered through against, against great adversity when she was at Yale uh, years ago, she discovered that cortisol genes were decreased in act or and cortisol itself was decreased in activity in people who had PTSD. And up until that point, everyone thought the opposite. Everyone, I would think the opposite. It, right. Everybody wow. was like, because in other disorders and other stress disorders, cortisol is increased. But in people who have PTSD, it turns out that these people actually have decreased levels of cortisol. And everybody thought she was wrong and nobody knew why uh, what she was finding she was finding. And she stuck with it and, and pushed against the adversity and continued to get the same result over and over again through studying Holocaust survivors and their descendants and found that, fascinatingly enough, right, as you push the envelope, that she found out the reason. The reason is because when people experience chronic stress over time and trauma compounded over time, time being a critical factor, that it causes changes to the methylation patterns or the epigenetic regulation of the gene the cortisol genes so that there's actually that the environmental experience of that trauma over time causes changes to the expression patterns and the way that our bodies not just in our brains but in our whole bodies regulate the expression of cortisol cortisol receptor genes and lots of other genes that we don't necessarily wow. understand yet. And now Damn. her findings have been replicated in mice and rats in causal ways to show that if you traumatize these animals in different manners and train their fear response, they have epigenetic changes to these, to these genes. And that not only are those changes happening in the animals that have been traumatized, but they get passed on over generations. So if you don't resolve or ex what we call extinguish the, the fear response, that was associated with that traumatic event, then it will be passed on for multiple generations. Holy and shit. And if you extinguish that response using behavioral techniques, as one example, you can remediate that epigenetic wow. gene expression change. I mean, that is groundbreaking wow. work. And so that scientifically validates ancestral trauma. I mean, exactly. This is something you hear a lot in, in shamanic work, right? Is that you're processing something from your grandfather and this and that, or in the case of Holocaust survivors, right? Um, one would assume that in that, in your lineage, even though it was your grandmother that was, you know, in that situation, that there's got to be some effect on you down the line, but how do you prove it? I guess she did, huh? Yep. That's wild. Yep. And so, wow, that really speaks to the collective trauma of large swaths of people. I mean, think of all the indigenous people that have been harmed and, you know, right. subjugated in so many ways. Right. And not had the opportunity for healing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, right. And then that trauma gets right. passed on and amplified over time wow. for potentially who knows how many generations, right? right? That it continues on because they right. haven't had those healing opportunities that should be, that they deserve, right? That should be available uh. to them. 
Like, wow. you know, it's not enough to just say like, I'm sorry, you know, we're sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's like, there needs to be like a real opportunity for healing that is intentionally curated that honors those people and mm -hmm. honors them for their struggle and what they've been through. And that hasn't really happened, right? It's kind of been like a half-assed yeah. thing, but it yeah. hasn't really happened in that, in that way. And, and I'm hopeful that we will get there in this generation. I really am. I think yeah. that it's close, but you know, we're not there yet. And we have a lot, of, a lot to do. I'm hopeful too. I mean, I, I was thinking about that. I'm writing a book and some looking at some of my family history and things like that, seeing what's been passed on. And there's a lot of trauma and craziness in my family as there are for many of us. And I was thinking about myself and my younger brother, who's kind of followed the path of recovery and, and really working on himself. And I realized that it's, it's like the buck stops here. You know, when and if I have kids and he has kids, they're going to have a completely different experience as a result of the work that that we've done on healing trauma through all the different ways that it can be done. I mean, I'm not going to traumatize my kid. I'm sure I'll make mistakes and be a dumbass and, you know, be imperfect, but I won't do the things that happened to me. No way. Right. Not going to happen because not only because of the kind of moral compass that I've been able to develop, but there, there aren't those wounds within me have been healed, I think, and hope to the point where I wouldn't be passing on those same patterns of behavior. Right. Because the, the, the impulse to act that way is not there anymore. The impulse to act with love and empathy and compassion is more um, uh, exercised. Right. You know? So, And we all have a little bit of trauma in us, right? We've all yeah. had somewhere down the line, whether it's in our memory or whether it's beneath our memory and our subconscious, there's almost all of us have had some degree of traumatic or, or self-invalidating experiences. It's very rare for anyone to not have had something go on, right? That shifted your sense of self or your sense of self-worth or what have you. And, and you know, to your point, it, it's, it's quite empowering to know that we have the choice to stop the cycle, right? Yeah. It's literally a choice that we have at any moment, in every moment, in every moment of our lives, we have the choice to stop that cycle. And if we choose to deny the fact that we've been traumatized or, or deny the fact that we've had bad things happen to us that might still need to be processed or worked on, um, or you know, shame or guilt ourselves for having had that stuff happen, and so it gets repressed or suppressed and not dealt with, then we do know that it will come out into other people it will come out into other people in our communities and it will be inflicted on unintentionally on other people in our families as well and our wow. children right and so there really is an incentive to use this knowledge that we now have from all of these wonderful people like eric and rachel and um to to it accept that we are that what we know is useful information and that we have the ability to stop that cycle right now so cool. It's pretty cool. Wow. So empowering, especially if you come from a lineage of traumatized, victimized people and you, you can face and heal that. Then not only, yeah, because it's not only that you're not then going to perpetuate that behavior and model that behavior, it's that the epigenetics of that, I guess, programming of those neural pathways mm -hmm. is actually going to be healed and not present anymore when you procreate. 
at least that's what it seems like. Yeah. Is I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah. No, that, you know I mean, that's what the evidence, we don't know for sure hundred yeah, percent, yeah. but we have a lot, the evidence is supporting that. Yeah. And that's really cool, right? Like what could be more empowering oh, amazing. than to know that if you come from a really, really tough background or, or that you come from, or that you had trauma in your own life, that, that through, by doing the work, you can actually be the, the arbiter of your own destiny. You can be the agent of your own of your own future right like that's pretty freaking wild yeah and it goes back to that point of projection earlier too you know this tendency for human beings to look outside of themselves and perceive that things should be different and that things are unjust which they often are but that the outward expression of our desire to help can often be ineffective and sometimes destructive when what's really needed often is a mirror to go, what is it within me, right? It's the same kind of phenomenon. That's incredible. It's almost always what's needed. Yeah. Is that mirror. Yeah. So it's, right. it's kind of like, um, you know, working on your own consciousness, expansion and healing is really the best way to help, at least in the beginning. And perhaps your decisions about what actions to take might be informed from a more healed perspective and be absent um, of, of a lot of that projection and well-meaning actions that actually do harm right or are just ineffective yeah god damn i love talking to you dude <laughs> likewise we're, we're like thanks so much for having me. yeah we're almost three hours in dude for anyone listening at this point i want to say god bless you man thank you so much for hanging with us and it speaks to a lot that someone would spend this much time listening to a conversation around these topics so i always like to thank you know the diehards at the end of long interviews because that's how I am. I mean, if somebody gets on a good roll and I'm passionate about it, I don't care how long it is. If it takes me three sittings, you know, I mean, I burn through audiobooks yep. that are hours and hours long because I'm just so passionate about the content. So thank you for you, your work, your heart, your mind, everything you brought here today, man. It's so My great. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. It's great yeah. to do this in person. Yeah, it is. Uh, other than apolloneuro.com, do you want to direct anyone to your clubhouse, your personal website? Where can people find more about you? Sure. Uh, you can find my personal work at drdave.io, uh, which is my clinical practice website and has lots of details and information and more podcasts and things like that on there for people who are interested. Um, and then on Clubhouse, I'm at, uh, at Dr. Dave. And on Bam, you must have been an early adopter if you got that handle. <laughs> I, I was, I was, that's actually, we were lucky to be one of some of the earlier folks. I think we we're in the first like five. 5,000 people in oh, there or okay. something like that, which was great because it allowed us to educate that much more with the club, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah. Um, and really grateful to Paul and Stephanie and, and Rohan who have made Clubhouse such a success and such a free speaking, free place to speak your mind and also feel like you're part of a community, which is so cool, particularly when we're more isolated now than we've been in a while and hopefully coming back to community. Um, and then also, you know, please reach out to me on Twitter at Dave Rabin or on Instagram at Dr. David Rabin. And I always love to hear from everybody. And cool. It's nice to stay in touch. Yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you. Well, well done today. We nailed it. As always. <laughs> Well, I don't know about you lot, but I feel like my toolkit of mental and emotional adaptation and wellness has definitely been fortified by this conversation with Dr. Dave. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Again, you know, I say this often at the end of these episodes, but I just can't believe this is my job, or at least part of it. Uh, I personally benefit so much from 
these interactions and just having the opportunity to sit down and speak to such brilliant and amazing people is such a gift, truly. And that, of course, would not be possible if no one was listening, right? I guess I could probably pay people to have a conversation with me, but there's no way these people would be sitting down for a couple hours for free if uh, they weren't getting their message out. So thank you for doing your part and for yet another incredible conversation in a similar vein. Next Tuesday, we've got Dr. Aaron Eugen McMorrow, and that episode's called The Inner Journey, Saving Your Soul to Save Us All. And that's all about doing shadow work and trauma healing and uh, Aaron's incredible journey uh, as a PhD going into soil sciences and environmentalism and eventually ending up discovering uh, the power of her sexuality and plant medicines. And that episode next week is crazy good. I mean, not because I'm a part of it, but just the magic that ensued in that conversation, I think is going to benefit a lot of people. So subscribe to the show. And something that I never ask as a uh, a favor from you listeners is ratings and reviews. I'm sure if you listen to podcasts, they're always like, make sure to leave a rating in Apple and leave a review. And the reason that podcasters uh, make that request so often is that the theory is, and I'm sure there's some truth to it because everyone does it, is that when you leave a rating and a review, it helps podcasts uh, move up the ranks in terms of their visibility in the iTunes and I guess Spotify and the rest of them uh, algorithm that allow you to discover shows. So if you feel so inclined, please leave a rating and review for this podcast. It's a really simple and quick way to help support the show and to help it reach more people. And I truly believe that as this show reaches more people, it's going to benefit humanity or at least a certain segment of them that relate to the topics and guests that we cover here. So do your old pal Luke and all of our guests and yourself and the world a favor and uh, go ahead and leave a rating review. Be super grateful if you did so. For those of you that heard uh, Dave talk about his fantastic technology called the Apollo I want to remind you that you can get that at apolloneuro.com and you can save yourself 15% off there by using the code Luke15. That's apolloneuro.com. And I wouldn't give you guys links and discounts for these things, honestly, unless I really liked them and believed in them. And there are times when a guest comes on and, you know, they have a company they want to promote and, you know, there's like a financial incentive for them coming on shows. And I guess people wouldn't spend two or three hours talking to someone unless they were getting something out of it. I mean, everyone, uh, I think of a higher consciousness enjoys the gifts of um, contribution and giving back and being of service, but you know, everyone has to pay the bills. But I want you to know that uh, I would never give links or promote someone's products unless I actually thought they worked. And this one does. That said, you can also live a very fruitful, prosperous life of joy without putting any technology on your body. Uh, now, I, I don't do that just because I'm a geek and I love experimenting with all this stuff. But as I always say, and I'm going to keep saying it forever, because I think so many of us get caught up sometimes in the distractions of the supplements and the technologies and all of that stuff, you know, reaching outside of ourselves to uh, find a sense of fulfillment uh, inside. And all fulfillment truly is found, of course, inside and also by aligning ourselves with nature and human connection and touch and love and taking care of our mindset, keeping our emotional and mental landscape clean 
as Dave uh, gave so much direction for in this conversation. But that said, I do think there is definitely some utility in finding things that support our ability to do that, to stay, you know, balanced and regulated emotionally. And the Apollo definitely helps me do that almost on a daily basis. I don't want to say I use it every day because the way I use the Apollo is I uh, plug it in, activate the Bluetooth, then I connect it to the app, then I run a program. Then what's really cool about this device is that you can turn the Bluetooth off. So I do that, but in order to turn it back on, I have to go plug it in again. So sometimes a couple of days go by and I see it sitting by my charger in the bathroom and it's kind of an extra trip to go uh, activate the Bluetooth and turn it on again. But I do really love this thing. So if you feel like checking it out, that's how you do it. And I think with that, my friends, uh, I'm going to bid you farewell and um, can't wait to join you next week with Aaron McMorrow. See you then. Thank you.